right. Well, let's go ahead and get started, and people can join us as the uh, as they get uh, aroused and from their slumbers and uh, roll in and with their coffee and such. Uh, my name is Eric Owens. Uh, I teach at Boston College, and it's a great pleasure to represent uh, the Religion and Politics section as well as the uh, Migrations uh, Unit here today. And I'd like to thank Susie Snyder for helping us put this terrific panel together. Um, we're really excited about the conversation, and as you know, uh, we have just a, a spectacular panel for you today. Um, I wanted to uh, invite you to uh, join the conversation by tweeting about the session at hashtag AARSBL, as we have been all weekend. Uh, I'm expecting Ajiba to live tweet and uh, the whole thing, so you could just follow her feed if you like, uh, but the rest of us can pitch in, uh, pitch in as well. Um, and uh, uh, Public Religion Research's editor and senior writer, Mackenzie Babb, is she here? Uh, Emily is here. Where is Emily? She'll be contributing to, uh, to this conversation as well online. So uh, finally, I'll ask that you mute your cell phones or tablets or buzzers, pacemakers, whatever else makes noise uh, so that we're not interrupted during our conversation. Um, it is uh, no surprise that uh, immigration is a hot topic both for religion and politics and uh, committee, but also for the uh, nation at large. Uh, in fits and starts, it uh, comes to the surface and, uh, of our public conversation. And whatever our conversation is about, we require good information about uh, what people think, what the laws are, and some very serious and rigorous uh, theological and moral thinking behind it as well. And so today we have panelists who can bring all of those things together into, into one conversation. And I won't uh, attempt to summarize the state of uh, immigration or uh, anything like that. We have experts on the panel who will do that. I'll simply um, let you know the format of our conversation this morning, and then we'll turn it over to the experts. Um, we'll be doing um, initial presentations from everybody. Uh, uh, Robbie Jones from Public Religion Research will be doing an initial presentation of the survey that this panel is built around. And then we'll have commentary by E.J. Dion and Bill Galston, uh, both of whom were engaged from the Brookings Institution uh, on this survey as well. And then we'll have responses from Professor Kristen Heyer and Manuel Vasquez um, as well. I'll introduce each person uh, before they give their talk. The panel will have a moment to respond and reflect on uh, panelist conversations, and then we'll turn uh, to the audience as well. So we'll have uh, plenty of time and lots to talk about. So now let me introduce our first speaker, uh, Robert P. Jones. Robbie is the CEO of Public Religion Research Institute and a leading scholar and commentator on religion, values, and public life. His biweekly Figuring Faith column is published in the Washington Post on Faith section, and he's frequently featured in major national media, including CNN, NPR, New York Times, etc. He's published a number of scholarly articles on religion and public policy, along with two books. The first, Progressive and Religious, How Christian, Jewish, Muslim, and Buddhist Leaders Are Moving Beyond the Culture Wars. And second, Transforming American Public Life and liberal, Liberalism's Troubled Search for Equality. He holds an MDiv from the Southwest Baptist Theological Seminary and a PhD in religion from Emory University, where he specialized in the sociology of religion, politics, and religious ethics. And uh, before he came to Washington to work at think tanks and start uh, PRRI, he was an assistant professor of religious studies at Missouri State University. So he was uh, one of us and also so much more. Uh, so uh, thank you, and please join me in welcoming Robbie Jones. Uh, thanks so much, everyone, for uh, joining us this morning. Uh, I understand the bag check line and the uh, coffee lines are both pretty long, uh, so you either got up very early or um, are running on low caffeine. Uh, either way, I'm, I'm, or have your bags with you. Um, either way, I'm, I'm happy you're here. 
uh, this morning, and um, we'll walk you through um, the main findings. Again, there are hard copies of the report in the very, very back. If you haven't gotten them, feel free to get up and, and grab a copy uh, in the back there. If you have colleagues, we have plenty of reports. So if you have a colleague who might want one, feel free to grab a couple, uh, take them with you. Um, and let me just say uh, at the outset, uh, you'll hear from E.J. Dion and Bill Galston in a minute. Um, the kind of foundation survey that um, I'll be talking about today was actually done in partnership with the Brookings Institution uh, and with uh, a lot of work with uh, uh, E.J. and Bill. And this represents a, a three-year uh, partnership uh, that we've uh, been uh, working uh, very diligently with over the last three years with, between PRRI and the Brookings Institution. So I want to say a, a big thanks to E.J. and Bill um, for helping us sort of craft uh, the research really from the from the get-go. Um, I also want to say um, that I'm, I'm happy to report that uh, the New York Times covered uh, the report this morning uh, in the in the paper on page A14. So uh, if you have the Times with you, you can read the Times take uh, on the uh, on the survey results uh, uh, today. Uh, so let me just tell you a little bit about what uh, since you know uh, we're here at academic conference. I want to make sure you know what we're looking at. Um, we're looking at a, a collection of research that we've done over the course of this year, beginning in March of 2013, when we conducted in partnership with the Brookings Institution the largest survey on immigration reform uh, and religion that, uh, that's been conducted um, perhaps ever, certainly this year in, in this current cycle of uh, debate around immigration policy. Uh, since that time, we have conducted um, five more surveys, uh, a set of 12 focus groups. Overall, this represents interviews with over 10,000 Americans uh, over the course of this year about their attitudes uh, on immigration reform. Uh, and we've broken all the, all the information down uh, by religious affiliation, by religious attitudes, and sort of getting a handle on the role that religion is playing um, in, in this debate. Uh, so I'm going to kind of give you the 30,000-foot flyover, uh, and then we have a distinguished panel that will sort of dig in in various places and, and um, give you uh, their insights on, uh, on what it all means. I think my job is to sort of run you through um, what we found. Um, <clears throat> the first thing to say is that we have found remarkably steady support for uh, a path to citizenship for immigrants who are living in the U.S. illegally uh, across the year. Uh, in fact, um, it is exactly flat, right? We found 63% uh, support for paths to citizenship in March. Uh, in August, we were back in the field, 63%. Uh, just this month, we were back in the field, 63%. So uh, it's really remarkable to see this kind of steady, um, you know, these were different samples taken over different time periods uh, and really no movement uh, at all um, in, in uh, support for a path to citizenship. Our question had three parts. Uh, it says, how should the immigration system deal with immigrants currently living in the U.S. illegally? Uh, should they, A, allow them to become citizens provided they meet certain requirements? Uh, B, allow them to become permanent legal residents but not citizens, or C, identify and deport them. And so this line, 63%, is allow them a way to become citizens provided they meet certain requirements. Um, the middle option, uh, interestingly enough, has uh, fairly low support. Um, but that is the, kind of allow them to become permanent legal residents but not citizens. Uh, and then about one in five Americans say the best approach should be to identify uh, these immigrants and, and deport them. So uh, as you can see, um, you know, we're looking at three to one um, support compared to these other options uh, for allow them to become citizens, uh, provide them meet certain requirements. It's also interesting to note um, how, and maybe one of the more significant findings that we're having, also th consistent throughout the year, uh, is that it's not sort of all Americans are there. Uh, there's that 63% number again. Uh, but it's not just Democrats or independents, um, but it's Republicans, right, who are also in pretty solid majority support uh, uh, on this on this issue. So 60% of Republicans say 
that they think the best way to deal with immigrants living in the country illegally is to um, allow them a way to become citizens provided they meet uh, certain requirements. That's something you might not know given how the debates are going uh, in the House uh, right around, uh, around this issue. Um, also, um, on the religious front, so we break down uh, uh, religious groups into kind of major religious groups in the country. You can see um, there's the sort of All-Americans at 63 percent, uh, minority Protestants at 7 and 10, uh, the unaffiliated at 64 percent, Catholics at 62 percent, white mainline Protestants at 60 percent. All that may not be so surprising, uh, but even when we look at, you know, some of the more Republican-leaning, more conservative uh, constituencies in the, in the country of white evangelical Protestants, we're still at 55 percent. Uh, support uh, for immigration, for, for a path to citizenship in the country. So uh, there are not that many issues when we measure issues, given the sort of partisan polarization in the country, where I can say there is bipartisan, cross-religious support uh, for the issue. A actually, ENDA is another one. Uh, the Employment Non-Discrimination Act is another one you can say that about, but, um, but there's not that many, and so this is pretty significant. Uh, one of the other things that we do at, at, at PRI is try to get a handle on um, What's going on? What kind of values are uh, animating people's beliefs? And why is it that we see this kind of cross-religious, uh, bipartisan cross-religious support? And one of the things that we found, I won't spend a lot of time, we can come back to this in the Q&A, we asked about a whole range of values uh, that people, uh, and how important they were to their attitudes on immigration reform. And, you know, not surprisingly, you can th see things like promoting national security, um, ensuring fairness to taxpayers that about 8 in 10 Americans say are either very important or extremely important to them. But I think one of the reasons why we're seeing this kind of very consistent support is that along with those kinds of values are the values of keeping families together and promoting the dignity of every person that are actually nearly as strong or as strong statistically as those other values. So we have kind of uh, values that are pushing uh, kind of both ways uh, here in, uh, in comprehensive immigration reform. Um, another thing that we, uh, I think, try to do, and we did this in partnership with the Brookings Institution, is try to sort out what's happening um, in polling data when we have a lot of different uh, outcomes. So right after we released our survey in March, uh, we noticed that the public opinion data on uh, immigration reform was, or specifically on a path to citizenship, was all over the map. Uh, there was like 30-point spreads from one poll to the other uh, on where Americans were. And, you know, we were thinking, okay, this can't be right. We actually don't think Americans are this confused, so what's going on? Uh, and we started looking at the different questions, and what we noticed is that some questions mentioned uh, that um, immigrants in the country illegally were going to have to meet some kind of requirements in order to be part of the, um, to get on a path to citizenship, and others didn't made no mention of any kind of requirements uh, that immigrants would have to meet. And, that, and we also sort of saw that that might be a factor. So we went back into the field and we did a, a, a kind of controlled survey experiment where we actually split our sample into three demographically identical subsamples and asked each, uh, each subsample a separate version of the question. So we had identically, uh, identically um, uh, kind of quarantine groups. Uh, one group got a question that just said straight up, uh, uh, what do you, you favor oppose allowing a way for immigrants who are currently living in the U.S. illegally to become U.S. citizens? That's all it said. It made no mention of requirements at all. We had a middle option that had the same wording and only added these words, provided they meet certain requirements. So just to mention uh, that they had to meet certain, didn't spell them out. And then we had a third version of the question where we sort of said, provided they meet certain requirements like paying back taxes, learning English, and passing a background check. So we specified uh, the requirements and uh, found very interesting results uh, on those three questions. So uh, group A here is um, uh, having, uh, mentioning no requirements and basically six in 10 in the country um, say they support uh, immigration reform at that rate. But you'll notice a huge partisan spread here. Republicans 
Um, this is the red bar of Republicans, only 39% of Republicans uh, supporting a path to citizenship if there's no mention of requirements, uh, even in 69% of, um, of Democrats supporting it. The middle option where we mentioned um, a, a requirement but didn't even spell it out, the um, most significant jump here is that Republicans jumped 39% to 50, from 39% to 54% just by the mention of requirements there and then uh, moved up into up to 62% when we spelled out uh, the requirements. So you can kind of see the steep uh, jump there with the little elephant uh, going up as Republicans uh, moving from one version of the question to the other. And as, as requirements get more specific, Republican support uh, becomes more solid is kind of the take home uh, here. It, it's also true among, among Democrats, but this, the curve is um, certainly less steep. Uh, this is also true for um, evangelicals, by the way, evangelical Protestants. Uh, if you mention no requirements, only 45% of white evangelical, uh, uh, white evangelical Protestants favor immigration policy uh, that allows a path to citizenship. But if you just mention that there will be some requirements uh, there, uh, uh, support uh, goes to 60%. Um, so a big 15-point jump uh, just by mentioning uh, requirements, which, of course, all the legislation uh, under consideration uh, does include uh, some requirements uh, there. So let me talk a little bit about states. We were also interested in how this plays out in various states in different locations in the country. So we, we conducted, um, our first poll was large enough to break out some state data. We also conducted an, an extra poll in Ohio and some, some focus groups as well. Um, one thing that we found in, in different states is they certainly have different experiences with, uh, not surprisingly, with immigration and immigrants. Uh, so this slide here um, shows uh, across four different uh, attitudes about uh, experiences with immigrants in selected states. So this is um, Arizona and Florida up here together. You can see they're fairly similar, um, similar numbers. So the first one is community, uh, their community has, they report their community has only a few or almost no immigrants, um, <clears throat> a little less than half or about half uh, there, uh, don't have any close friends who were born outside the U.S. Um, they don't know very well the story of how their own family first came to the U.S. Um, or they rarely or never come into contact with immigrants who speak little or no English. All right, so you can see on most of these questions, uh, residents of Arizona and Florida are well below, uh, sort of in, in minority territory on most of these questions. Uh, when you pop in Ohio here, you can see that Ohio has very, you know, Ohioans have very different experiences here. So uh, two-thirds of Ohioans say their community has almost uh, very few or almost no immigrants. Uh, six in ten Ohioans don't have any close friends who are born outside the U.S., uh, about four in 10 uh, don't know very well the story of how their own family came to the U.S. Um, and uh, it's uh, about 36% say um, rarely or never come into contact with immigrants who speak little or no English, which is nearly twice the rate of people in Arizona uh, and Florida. So that's sort of the context. The other, um, I think, so what do Ohioans, Arizonans, and Floridians make of these differences? Um, and, and just one benchmark question, we had a range of questions uh, that we asked around this, but one that I think gets to the heart of the matter is a question about perceptions of cultural threat uh, here. So uh, we asked a question that was kind of a binary question. The growing number of newcomers from other countries, A, strengthens American society, or B, threatens traditional American customs and values. Uh, among all Americans, you can see the numbers there, a majority, 54%, say the growing number of newcomers from other countries strengthens American society. About 4 in 10 say it threatens. Uh, Ohio, uh, Flor sorry, Floridians, uh, Arizonans look about like the U.S. Um, Arizonans a little more divided, uh, but you can see Ohioans there are the inverse of the U.S., right? So uh, a majority of uh, residents in Ohio uh, say that the growing number of newcomers from other countries threatens traditional American uh, culture and values. Uh, 
Now, what's interesting about this is despite these different experiences and despite even these different evaluations of the impact of immigrants in the U.S., we find uh, relatively little, actually no statistical difference in support for past citizenship. So there's not actually a tight connection between these different evaluations and experiences, even in Ohio, um, where we have a sort of neg more negative view toward the impact of immigrants. Six in 10 uh, Ohioans uh, say they support a path to citizenship for immigrants living in the country illegally um, here. So that was sort of an interesting finding. Um, the other thing we've been trying to do is to get underneath the specific uh, pieces of the bill uh, that, that the Gang of Eight uh, kind of hammered together. And so we decided to go in and ask specifically about waiting periods, about the level of fines and fees, and about spending on border security and to see what the level of support was um, in the country. I'm giving you partisan breaks here. Um, one interesting thing is there's pretty strong consensus in the country uh, that the currently proposed in the Senate bill 13-year path to citizenship is too long. Um, so we heard this uh, from, this is true, Democrats, independents, Republicans, even six and ten Republicans uh, say it's too long. When we did focus groups in Arizona, Ohio, um, and Florida, uh, we heard even from uh, sort of self-identified Republicans and more conservative evangelicals uh, in these groups uh, that, e that they also said, you know, this is too long. You know, like and when we ask people to volunteer, what people most often said is five. Like we think five years. They should be able to get this done in five years uh, um, one way or the other. Um, in terms of fees, uh, Americans are much more divided about fines and fees uh, and how much is, is appropriate. So that we, did, we tested a level um, of around $4,000. If it cost each person a total of $4,000 in fines and fees to receive citizenship under a path to citizenship program, does that sound like too much about the right amount or too little? Um, all Americans, a plurality, um, say 43% say it sounds like too much, but 35% uh, say about the right amount. Uh, and there's another 16% who says too little. So pretty divided um, on this question. Uh, Democrats, uh, not surprisingly, are more likely to say it's too much. Republicans much more likely to say it's too little. So you can kind of see the uh, Republican push-pull uh, or the partisan push-pull um, on this question. Um, a very similar uh, question on border security. Um, so here are the provisions that are currently there. Um, uh, oppose, or supporting or opposing a plan to increase border security. Uh, and we spelled it out in adding 20,000 border agents, 700 miles of fencing, and at a cost of $46 billion. Uh, do you support or oppose this? Americans are basically divided um, on the question. As you can see, they're divided pretty much along partisan lines here, with Democrats majority in favor, uh, Republicans, uh, sorry, Democrats uh, majority opposing it, and Republicans actually strongly in favor, or nearly 7 in 10 uh, Republicans in favor of this proposal. Um, so uh, what does it all mean for where we are, I think, in the legislative process? Um, here. Uh, I wanted to kind of talk about the importance of this, and I'll, I'll wrap it up with this. Uh, we had a question about whether, uh, how important a priority it should be for President Obama and Congress. Um, we uh, saw slightly different numbers, but these actually numbers actually aren't statistically uh, different uh, here. So about 4 in 10 uh, Americans say uh, that uh, immigration policy, fixing immigration policy, should be an immediate priority uh, for President uh, Obama and Congress. About the same number uh, saying uh, it should be a priority, but over maybe over the next couple of years. Uh, but only 14% uh, of Americans today, um, similar numbers in March, uh, saying it should not be a priority. So uh, overwhelmingly, um, you know, uh, Americans say it should be a priority over the next couple of years for sure, uh, and about half of those say it should be an immediate um, uh, priority. Uh, one other place that we found, though, um, that there is a difference uh, in uh, attitudes between March and November is that more Americans today, even between March and November, think that the immigration system is completely broken. 
uh, than they thought even in March. So that attitude is actually significant. Uh, in, in March, it was only 23% of Americans said the immigration system is completely broken, with another 40% saying, well, it's broken, but maybe it's working in some areas. Uh, and today, we see that number has gone from 23% to 34% uh, of Americans saying that the immigration system is completely broken, uh, with an additional 31% uh, saying that it's broken but working uh, in some ar areas. And you can see we're in single digits uh, for Americans who say the immigration system is generally working, right? So uh, ne nearly uh, very, very few uh, Americans there. Um, the other th uh, thing to say, though, is that there's a, a distinct difference um, uh, in the attitudes of uh, Hispanic uh, Hispanics in the country on um, what kind of a priority it should be. So not surprisingly, if you look at this, uh, huge differences here, right? So a majority of, of, um, of Hispanics in the country uh, say that uh, it should be an immediate priority, another 36% uh, said it should be a priority over the next couple of years, uh, and uh, African-American and, and white non-Hispanic Americans uh, looking about the same, a little less urgency there. Um, this could be a real key place as we head toward the midterms, particularly in some districts uh, where the Hispanic vote it really may count, and certainly as we head into 2016 where the Hispanic vote will certainly uh, uh, make, make a big difference. Uh, one other thing from a previous survey we had on, uh, among Hispanics in the country that I just want to kind of flag here, uh, that's attitudes about the two political parties among Hispanics. This is among, uh, among all Hispanics. Uh, the red bars here are the ones that kind of pay attention to. Uh, we asked about the two uh, political parties, uh, whether they were extreme in their positions, whether they share your values, cares about people like you, looks out for the interests of people uh, from different backgrounds. I think the one to really pay attention to here, um, if I want to kind of zero in on one, is like cares about people like you, right? Uh, huge differences in how Hispanics view the two political parties and caring about uh, people like you. Um, only 12% of Hispanics in the country say the Republican Party cares about people like them. Right? That's a bad number if you're a Republican uh, strategist. Uh, I would point out, though, uh, on this issue that less than a majority of Hispanics say the Democratic Party uh, cares about people like them. Right? That's also significant. And nearly 3 in 10 say that near, neither political party cares about people like them. So that's also not a great number if you're a Democratic uh, strategist uh, either. Uh, I think that's, that's uh, kind of one interesting thing wh where we are. And one other thing I think that, um, that uh, you know, will be relevant uh, as, uh, you know, their kind of political calculations made uh, moving toward the midterms and into 2016 uh, is that not only do Hispanics say that, um, uh, you know, this is an important issue to them, it's, they want it to be an immediate priority, but we asked uh, among, and this is among Hispanic likely voters, so these are people who are both registered to vote and, uh, based on their past history, likely to vote. Uh, in, in elections going forward, um, and we uh, said, will you be more or less likely to vote for a candidate who, and, and asked them about several things, supported legalized abortion, supporting allowing gay and lesbians to uh, couples to marry, or opposing immigration reform that includes the path to citizenship, and interestingly enough, a majority uh, of 54% of Hispanic likely voters say uh, they'd be less likely to vote for someone, uh, so there may be a price to pay uh, at the ballot box um, uh, for not supporting uh, immigration reform that includes the path to citizenship. We can talk a little bit more about the political implications going forward, but with that, I'll wrap it up and hand it over to Bill, okay. EJ? EJ, all right, great. spoke uh, from here because it's easier to have them arrayed. Uh, but can I have the mic, though? Am I good? Uh, thank you. Um, I have two apologies to make at the outset. One is that I'm going to have to leave a little early because I have to teach my 
seminar at Georgetown, and uh, those of you who teach understand that those obligations have to come first, especially since it's a weekly seminar, so you uh, cancel a lot on your students if you do that. Um, the second apology is that if I am a little coherent, it's entirely my fault, incoherent. Um, I don't know how many, um, see, there I, there I go. Um, I don't know how many New England Patriots fans there are in this room. Knowing that I had to wake up really early to get to Baltimore, I nonetheless watched it all through overtime last night. I have at least one sympathizer, so bless you for being here, knowing how late you were up uh, uh, last night. It was a great game, if, especially if you're a New England uh, Patriots fans. Um, I just want to reiterate what uh, Robbie said about our partnership right at the start. Um, this has been, uh, for Bill and me and for Brookings, um, both extraordinarily enlightening and a great opportunity to partner on what we think is really interesting survey research. Um, and I know you're not supposed to admit this if you're doing academic work, but it was also a lot of fun. Uh, and we, um, it's a lot of fun because we have really sort of approached this as trying to answer questions that uh, we think are out there that aren't being answered by anybody else. And when you have a survey instrument of your own, you can do that. Um, and that sort of, that leads into one of the first things I want to say, which is, um, I, and I want to commend this as a possible research area to anyone um, who is interested. Our first survey together um, was really a pair, a twin pair of surveys before um, and after the 2010 election. And what we were fascinated by was the relationship between uh, the then rising uh, Tea Party um, and the religious conservative movement or the religious right. And many saw the Tea Party as an alternative movement on the right to the religious conservative movement. Um, but what our survey showed was extraordinary overlap uh, between uh, the Tea Party and the religious conservative movement. Um, what a, um, uh, David Brody, I guess it was, of the Christian Broadcasting System talked about the emergence of the T-evangelicals. Uh, there are a lot of T-evangelicals out there. And the existence of T-evangelicals has some real influence on the um, um, immigration debate. We, uh, in our earlier survey, um, we sort of broke up the, um, uh, the, the population into a series of groups, Tea Evangelicals, people who are Tea Party and Evangelicals, people who are Tea Party and not Evangelicals. Then we had a couple of non-Tea Party groups, including uh, Evangelical and non-Tea Party. Um, and what appears to be the case from our um, research is that being an Evangelical does make you uh, more sympathetic to immigration reform but that if you are a, a um, Tea Evangelical, your views are quite close to those of other uh, Tea Party members. You're a little bit more open uh, to immigration reform. But if you are uh, Evangelical and not Tea Party, you are very open to immigration reform um, and a path to citizenship. And I think that when we look at the politics going forward of immigration reform, there has been an enormous and genuine mobilization on the part of a lot of religious conservative leaders uh, on behalf of immigration reform, as there has been uh, within the uh, Roman Catholic Church. Um, now, I think there were very practical reasons for this uh, mobilization, uh, that uh, Latinos represent the largest potential audience uh, for conversion, uh, both for Roman Catholics who are trying to keep them and for evangelicals who are trying uh, to win them over. So it uh, would be extremely impractical for either of these groups 
uh, to be opposed to immigration reform. Uh, but I want to be entirely cynical about this. There are clear uh, Christian and biblical commitments about being open to strangers, even though, just to let you know, if you're having an argument over your back fence, Robbie's research shows that being open to strangers is one of the worst arguments advocates of immigration reform can use. One of the only groups with whom it works, actually, are evangelical Christians. And one of the reasons it works for them is because they are biblically uh, literate. Almost everyone else views the word stranger the way you may have used it with your children, as in don't talk to strangers. So, um, but clearly, there is both a religious and a practical part of the commitment of evangelicals to uh, immigration reform, and I think those who have not at all and not lost heart entirely over the prospect of immigration reform uh, in this Congress uh, note that there are two very important constituencies with real influence on the Republican Party who favor immigration reform. One is the white evangelical community, and the other uh, is the business community. Um, the second point I want to make is there's a lot of speculation. Uh, about uh, why the Senate passed an immigration reform bill and why it's in so much uh, trouble uh, in the House of Representatives. Um, and um, I, there are clearly structural differences between the House and the Senate, but those aren't what I want to emphasize here. Um, I do think one very important difference that isn't uh, attended to enough is that the bill came up in the Senate uh, in much closer proximity to the 2012 election than it is now coming up in the House. And I do believe that the longer this takes, the less the memory of what happened uh, in the uh, 2012 election uh, is live, particularly in the minds of Republicans. In our earlier survey, I thought, and we all thought, that one of the most striking findings is we asked uh, all uh, respondents whether um, the Republican Party was hurt or helped by its uh, stand on immigration in the 2012 campaign. Uh, and what really struck us is 39% of Republicans said that the party was hurt by its position on immigration. Only 11% of Republicans said the party was helped by um, its position on immigration. And I think when this bill came up in the Senate, those, the memory of that harm uh, uh, you know, Mitt Romney's position in favor of self-deportation, about which I want to say a word, um, the alienation of Hispanic voters, this was very live in the minds of uh, uh, Republicans. Um, that is beginning to fade a bit as other issues are uh, prominent. Um, uh, but the other fact is that, um, and, and, and this is not news to anyone, um, obviously, the, most uh, Republican senators represent larger uh, constituencies. And when we look at the importance of opposition to immigration reform among Tea Party supporters, they're more open, actually, than most people realize. I think one of the interesting things about this research is that even members of the Tea Party are more open to uh, a path to citizenship with certain requirements than most people expect. Nonetheless, they are the most hostile group. These are the folks that uh, House uh, Republicans um, uh, are very responsive to because uh, they vote in large numbers in the primary. Um, I believe this is in Morabi's recent polls, just to underscore the bottom line, on white evangelical Protestants, 55% still support uh, a path to citizenship. Um, a couple of other quick points I want to make. Um, one is, I think Robbie's research, which is in the second report, on the matter of how you pose this question 
really matters um, is something that you should bear in mind when consuming any research on this subject. And there's an important political lesson uh, from that, which is that um, there are many Americans who are open to solving the problems facing uh, illegal uh, immigrants, undocumented immigrants. Um, there are many Americans who, whatever their views on other matters, um, you'll realize that somehow or other these folks are going to become citizens someday. But there is, if you view it from one point of view, a punitive tendency. If you view it from another point of view, there's a tendency that comes from justice uh, that says, well, these folks broke the law. There should be some consequence to that. Um, when you include certain requirements, paying a fine um, um, and, um, you know, t and passing uh, tests and other things, support goes up. And so I think it's very important for advocates of immigration reform to attend to this justice question as they clearly have in the bill. There's also on the punitive side a, a colleague, a friend of mine who does survey research actually asked an experimental question once where he asked, uh, would you favor a path to citizenship if illegal immigrants were required to become citizens? And when it was cast as a requirement, they can't get it unless they become citizens, you actually had some bump up uh, in uh, uh, support. Um, two last points I want to make, uh, and Robbie's research, again, the recent research uh, underscores this. One is some work by Pew, uh, spearheaded by Andy Kohat and, and folks at the Pew Hispanic Center. Um, they found that opposition to immigration reform um, is most pronounced in two kinds of places. One are areas of, of large-scale recent immigration, um, and I think that's totally understandable. There is a sense on the part of people in those communities that they are um, in some way losing control over the environments in which uh, they lived, uh, and they worry that, and Bill is going to touch on this later, a worry that uh, a world they have become accustomed to and are comfortable in um, is under some kind of threat. Um, but the other more surprising one is that uh, areas where there are almost no immigrants are also areas of particularly high opposition to immigration reform. And I think there's quite a lot of data uh, that suggests that when immigrants are not others, when they're people you are familiar with, people in your church, people down the street, um, that uh, this does have a tendency to reduce opposition. I was fascinated in Robbie's most recent work that um, in Ohio, um, at one and the same time, it is the state where the largest number says that their community has the, few, uh, the fewest immigrants, few or no immigrants, and the highest number who say that immigrants threaten traditional American values. Now, Robbie, correct me if I'm wrong, some of those numbers are influenced by the immigrant and Hispanic composition of, uh, so you're obviously bumping up the numbers in states with large numbers of Hispanics, but I think that's a nonetheless revealing number. Last point, and I won't dwell on it. Um, uh, a lot of us care about the uh, conditions in the future of the white working class. There's been a lot of work done suggesting that white working class voters are a bulwark for the Republican Party, which comes as a surprise, I must say, to somebody like me who grew up in a, the Union town of Fall River, Massachusetts, where the white working class was not a bulwark of Republican votes, although my town was so Catholic that I think we were still voting for Al Smith. Um, but uh, the, there has been, obviously, a change uh, in the country. Two caveats to bear in mind on this. First, 
um, is just a regional caveat uh, that um, um, uh, white working class voters outside the South are significantly more democratic and take more democratic positions than white working class voters in the South. But one of the things we found, and here my colleague Bill Galston was uh, the person who really noticed this, so I'll use this to flip it over to Bill. Um, there is an extraordinary difference between millennial white working class voters and other uh, white working class voters that we act, as all of you who do social science know, um, there is always a, a tendency to um, have a, to stereotype particular groups and not ever look at the diversity uh, within those groups. And we know that uh, millennials are far less religiously affiliated than other Americans on a whole series of measures, including immigration. Um, younger white working class voters were, uh, I use the term guardedly, more liberal, more progressive uh, than older uh, white working class voters. I think this uh, may tell us a lot about what uh, we face uh, in the future and that uh, when we talk about uh, the new generation being uh, quite different in many ways politically and in their beliefs than the older generation, uh, I think this difference uh, crosses uh, both uh, racial and class lines uh, in ways that I think are very instructive and very important for us uh, to take into account. And with that, I turn it over to my friend Bill. Well, is this working? Okay. Uh, I want to pick up where EJ left off <clears throat> and to provide, to take the historical camera back a little bit, indeed almost, almost 50 years to the year 1965 because we did two momentous things in 1965 that I think transformed the country. Obviously, one was the change in the voting rights and voting status of Af African Americans, and that had a rapid impact. That was almost like a tactical nuclear detonation in the, midst of, in the middle of American politics. The other, reopening the gates of immigration after they'd been slammed shut in 1924, was equally consequential, but much slower acting. And we are still in the middle of the great social transformation that the reopening of the gates of immigration set in motion nearly half a century ago. And while I mistrust these sorts of stylized general generalizations, there's no question about the fact that there is an older America and a newer America, which in large measure is an older America and a younger America. And so a lot of what's playing out right now is a generational tale, and it's a tale whose ending we can predict, uh, but, but it's going to be a long story perhaps another 25 or 30 years before these changes are fully played out. And let me, just, let me just illustrate old America, new America, with one of Robbie's wonderful questions. Uh, you know, do you think the growing number of newcomers from other countries strengthens American society or threatens traditional American customs and values? You know, a, a wonderful diagnostic question. Overall, Americans uh, divide in favor 
But when you, when you probe the age dimension, something very dramatic shows up. 68% of millennials think these changes are strengthening American society. 56% uh, of Americans ages 30 to 49 agree. When you get to ages 50 to 64, it's an even split, 47-47. And when you're talking about seniors, there's actually a modest plurality against the proposition. So you can draw a line in the American population, you know, under 50, over 50, and two dramatically different sets of, of perceptions. And that, that generational tension is going to drive a lot of the conversation, certainly over the next decade. But don't draw a straight line from that 54-40 number to the way elections are going to turn out. Because what we know is, and this is especially true in midterm elections, the 50 and olders are habitual voters. They can't stop themselves. You know, they wake up, it's sort of like a Pav Pavlov's dog, right? Bing, and they go to the, they go to the polling booths. And for millennials, uh, it's an option. And if the weather is cold in November, not a terribly attractive one. Uh, and a lot of the 30 to 49s are going to have to get up at 4:30, get the kids, you know, get the kids in the car, uh, scramble around, and hope to get to work in time on roads that are too clogged because we've underinvested in infrastructure for the past 30 years. So. Uh, I really like it. It's not that. <laughs> <laughs> no talk is complete without it. Okay. Now, uh, so with that as an entering wedge, let me, you know, let me segue uh, to an even broader, and I suspect for many of you in this room, more surprising finding. Uh, we all have pictures in our heads about the 1950s. My picture is derived from experience looking at this room. Many of your pictures are not. Uh, but we all have a picture of the 1950s in our heads. It's one kind of touchstone, and the 1960s are a different kind of touchstone. And it may surprise you to learn that in our survey, 54% of respondents, 54% say that since the 1950s, American culture and, way, and our way of life has mostly changed for the worse. I think we need to do a lot more research to understand what that means, but that, you know, you have by a margin of 14% Americans saying that over the past 60 years, our lives have changed for the worse. Everybody in this room can list an enormous number of ways in which American society has become better during that period, but when the American people do the sums, majority comes to the opposite conclusion. We need, to, we need to know, we need to understand why that is. And there's some real surprises here. Uh, I don't think there's a lot of surprise, a lot of surprises if you look at breakdowns by political affiliation, the Republicans, the Independents, and the Democrats break the way you'd expect on that question. There's not a lot of surprise when you look at religion, you have white evangelicals and white mainliners and white Catholics and Mormons and slight surprise, even Hispanic Protestants on the more pessimistic side about these changes. And, you know, 
Jews, Hispanic Catholics, and black Protestants on the much more affirmative side. Uh, but here's a surprise for you, worth thinking about. 53% of men think that American society has changed for the worse since the 1950s. Well, okay. You know, uh, a lot of men, particularly downscale men, can tell that story pretty well. But guess what? 55% of women think that American society has changed for the worse since the 1950s. What is that about? It's not a rhetorical question. I don't know the answer. But I think we need to know, I think we need to understand what's going on there a lot better. 55% of women, despite all of the strides that you know, anybody in this room can enumerate, think that the changes have been for the worse. What is that about? A final point, uh, and I think this is a point that this is a point that must be made in a conference of this sort. The research that you've heard about discovered something dramatic about religion-based appeals for immigration reform. Namely, they don't seem to work very well. <laughs> uh, the, uh, you know, the research actually arrayed no fewer than eight different morally laden arguments in favor of immigration reform. The two weakest by far were continuing America's heritage as a nation of immigrants and following the biblical example of welcoming the stranger. EJ has already talked a little bit about that. But you know what? The golden rule doesn't do that well either. Uh, the, you know, the big winners were promoting national security and keeping families together, protecting the dignity of every person, enforcing fairness to taxpayers, and enforcing the rule of law. Now, I'm not saying that you can't draw a path from religion to at least some of those values, including enforcing the rule of law, which has a very high moral status in many of the world's great religions. But the kind of core religious appeals you know, that you would, you would expect and many of you would hope would be very powerful in the public square are not nearly as powerful as arguments that are much harder, in some cases harsher, and certainly more pragmatic in tone. What does that mean about the efficacy and the future of religious-based appeals surrounding the immigration issue? Uh, I think, as EJ pointed out, that with selected groups like white evangelicals, the welcoming the stranger argument is likely to be more powerful. Indeed, that's the way the white evangelical roundtable on this issue has framed its case. But overall, uh, advocates of immigration reform, I think, would do well to focus on the more pragmatic dimensions of this issue. What's in it for you, O American? O American, and what's in it for you, O America? And with that, I will subside. Is this on? Yeah. Um, thanks so much. I want to thank you both for the invitation to be here today. Um, 
um, honored to participate, especially in an approach that looks at what actual citizens think about immigration reform. I think this is a debate so often framed by pundits and politicians alone. Uh, it's actually also nice to be at an academic religion conference and look at what actual citizens think uh, about a moral issue. So I'd like to focus on several findings from the March uh, survey that signal, I think, some remaining barriers to reform uh, and their relevance for religious engagement. So kind of transitioning from Bill's final point. Um, to begin, I think several of the survey's findings indicate the roles that ideology and race and cultural assumptions play in shaping our perceptions about immigration reform. They indicate Americans perceive the social impact of immigrants through ideological lenses. Uh, some of that already came out um, in terms of uh, folks saying that they're having a major impact on society uh, compared to modest impact in their actual communities. Related perceptions include those of the 40% indicating uh, foreign newcomers are a threat to American tradition and culture, uh, together with this surprisingly high level of nostalgia that Bill just referred to, uh, with 54%, including women, as you say, agreeing uh, American culture and the way of life have changed for the worse since the 50s. I think connected to fears about rapid cultural changes are indirect indications of the role race plays in shaping attitudes on this subject. Um, so 61% of white Americans embrace the idea uh, that American culture has declined, whereas, as you said, majorities of Asian, African American, Latino Americans report things have improved. Um, the survey also bears out the impact more subtle dynamics of race have on related perceptions. So when asked directly, one in 10 white uh, non-Hispanic Americans say they agree that the idea of an America where most people are not white bothers them. But when asked indirectly, they had a, a controlled survey experiment, list experiment, the agreement rose to nearly one-third. So I think anxieties about rapid cultural or demographic changes are critical to understanding today's immigration debate. Representations of the outsider as a social menace have historically been reinvented in times of um, national crisis, with the general pattern evidencing xenophobia's productive function in our national imaginary. You can think of different quota laws, restrictive legislation. And I think racialized portrayals of immigrants as maybe public charges who fail to assimilate um, or a dangerously porous border continue to shape our society's collective imagination, uh, even perhaps as its celebratory narrative focuses on ideas like democracy, liberty, hospitality. Um, these more recent focus groups uh, that Robbie just outlined um, Participants report feeling invaded, perhaps. EJ uh, referred to this as well. I think the nostalgia conveyed in the survey indicates challenges to integration efforts as well. An understanding of national membership rooted in inherited characteristics rather than a shared commitment to civic ideals, I think complicates the task of incorporating newcomers and inviting their contributions to a common project. Integrating immigrants is a fraught and daunting task, and maybe it's a lot easier for native populations to just decry the other's difference or uh, idealize the good old days than take responsibility for encounter amid pluralism. But I agree with Bill. I think the survey's findings uh, also raise questions about religious formation, especially these uh, indicators on ideology and affiliation. Um, as another recent survey put it, believers take their cues less from their catechism than from their cohort. Um, and so I think forces that elevate 
cultural or economic or security concerns above moral ones wield significant influence. Religious attention, I would say, to naming disvalues operative in the immigration debate uh, is at least as urgent as advancing values, and I think it may be related to reception of the latter. So 20th century Protestant and Catholic elaborations of social sin, I want to suggest, um, shed some light in this regard. In its broadest sense, social sin encompasses unjust structures, distorted consciousness, and collective actions that facilitate dehumanization. Building on sociological understandings of internalized structures, theologians have articulated different stages that illuminate uh, the relationship between its voluntary and non-voluntary dimensions. So I just want to try this out to see if it sheds any light on some of these findings. Um, I'm going to use the four stages of Gregory Baum. Level one, unjust institutions and trends uh, that embody people's collective life. Level two, cultural ideologies, um, symbolic systems that kind of legitimate unjust institutions. Third, a false consciousness that is created by institutions and ideologies that convince people their actions are good. And then fourth, collective decisions uh, that increase injustice. So following these four levels, the factors propelling undocumented migration include the impact of a system uh, whose considerable discrepancy between labor needs and legal avenues for work has increased the volume and the danger of extra-legal flows. The primacy of deterrence has institutionalized securities concerns rather than uh, human rights or family unity in our immigration laws. And the nation's economic interests have been institutionalized, I would say, in uneven free trade agreements. Uh, beyond institutions, commodification trends are uh, apparent in proposed point systems in a detention industry that uh, profits from this prevailing enforcement-heavy approach. Um, human trafficking networks, there's a lot of commodification examples. The survey findings suggest the influence, too, of operative ideologies. So I think amid this climate, buzzwords, uh, slogans like illegal alien or even national security can serve as idols to conceal a sinful reality and provoke demonization. At a more subtle level, a consumerist ideology shapes citizens' willingness to underpay undocumented immigrants either directly or through indirect demand. So at level two, symbols enshrine values and penetrate the human imagination and worldview. When cultural or religious symbols mask values, they sustain structural relationships that hinder authentic human development. So cultural uh, ideologies, cultural symbols like the use of Emma Lazarus, lofty rhetoric uh, to conceal exclusionary ends can influence citizens' outlook, um, as do religious symbols. Uh, for example, individualistic penitential rituals can reinforce just private notions of sin. Um, or in my own tradition, the selective uh, use of cooperation with evil language can obscure the urgency of moral issues outside the sexual realm. So level three, these ideologically anchored, anchored structures of injustice then can produce blindness that lulls citizens into equating law-abiding with just. Social manifestations could aggregate to large-scale hardness of heart. So in this day and age, remaining oblivious to the plight of small family farmers uh, or the fetal realities of the border arguably, arguably enter into uh, culpable, culpable ignorance. 
So internalized fears, tribalism, uh, or just callous greed can lead to this uh, apathy, apathetic acquiescence. Uh, and then finally, level four, these internalized ideologies uh, and distorted consciousness can lead to um, collective actions. So we've seen the passage of punitive ordinances, for instance. So I think social sin could help underscore the way in which these structures, socioeconomic and political structures that abet irregular migration are connected to some of the ideological blinders that foster injustice. And it remains unclear whether the values measured uh, in this survey can sustain modes of justice required to redress these really entrenched patterns of dehumanization. So justice understood in terms of the golden rule values surveyed, for instance, I think could explain why uh, second and third generation immigrants often resent different rules for incoming immigrants as reflected in the initial survey. That was one of the, the largest divide, divides, I think, between first and third generation immigrants. Um, or why support more recently uh, for citizenship increases with the specific requirements. Um, questions of more distributive justice, uh, injustice, or social injustice aren't really even surfaced uh, if our notion of justice is just formal equality of opportunity uh, or if we think of immigrants as deserving of charity or hospitality at best. So I think structural injustice also, um, I am heartened to see the, the percentages in favor of comprehensive overhaul and the percentages admitting the entire system is broken uh, because I think piecemeal reform doesn't even get at these structural issues. Uh, and then in addition to exposing disvalues, I think uh, interrogating the function of the ostensible values measured is also warranted. So agreement with following the golden rule uh, and protecting human dignity predicts this higher support for a path to citizenship and agreement with ensuring fairness to taxpayers and enforcing the rule of law predicts lower support, the pragmatic legal values as you um, classified it. Amid contexts marked by these new fear of changes, along with more timeless temptations, neighboring temptations to power and security, the immigration debate has been framed often in misleading terms that I think distract from actual motives and consequences. In some instances, deceitful tendencies are driven by misinformation rather than malice, so there's a lot of misinformation about crime rates or the net economic impact of regularizing immigrants. Um, the survey, I think, hopefully indicated this correlation between accurate knowledge of, of deportations, for instance, uh, and support for a path to citizenship. Only 28% of Americans correctly um, state that deportations have increased in recent years, or past 2 million, I believe. Yet some of the pragmatic legal values surveyed can mask realities or become surrogates for other concerns. Um, for example, the rule of law, I think, rightly occupies a privileged place in the United States, um, but a criminal frame in this debate can facilitate condemning immigrants as lawbreakers without evoking any skepticism about flawed policies. So in April, I attended an Operation Streamline hearing in Tucson, uh, and watching shackled young men and women uh, collectively herded through the legal process, lacking sufficient time with an attorney, uh, several lacking even sufficient translation, um, really raised troubling questions for me about due process. Um, a Bush-appointed district judge from Las Cruces who averages about 100 felony sentencings uh, per month has conceded immigrants who face him are not criminals, but parents trying to feed their children bearing the brunt of broken policies. 
So I think sometimes despite diversionary rhetoric that collapses different meanings of law, uh, the human rights violations that irregular immigrants um, experience can undermine the rule of law itself and its legitimacy. So how can religion counter susceptibility to disvalues and misinformation? I want to say I have deep appreciation for the role of uh, that faith-based activists continue to play in keeping alive comprehensive reform. Some examples have been mentioned. Uh, yet the March survey indicates most are not frequently hearing about the issue of immigration and church. Uh, whereas the death toll of migrants crossing deserts steadily mounts, even as crossings decline, and families remain separated by visa quotas, immigration doesn't usually rank as a life issue or a family values issue. And I think these entrenched dynamics of social sin demand interruption and conversion from complicity in, in these patterns. Um, so as an example, in July, uh, you may remember Pope Francis's first visit um, outside of Rome, his first official visit was to uh, Lampedusa, the island in the Mediterranean um, that's become a safe haven for African migrants seeking passage to Europe. And he, he celebrated a mass there. He met with migrants uh, to commemorate the 20,000 African immigrants who had died over the past 25 years trying to reach a new life. Um, and his homily identified this pervasive idolatry that facilitates migrants' death. He confessed he too remains uh, disoriented by this globalization of indifference. And he asked forgiveness for those who are pleased with themselves, who are closed in by their own well-being in a way that leads to anesthesia of the heart. Um, and he also talked about those whose global decisions create the situations leading to these tragedies. So I think this was striking. Pope Francis summoned not largesse in response to misfortune, uh, but ecclesial and civic repentance from complicity and injustice. I think faith communities counter narratives of common humanity counter the instrumentalist frameworks that um, dominate the debate, and they actually resonate with our national narrative at its best. Um, as Sister Simone Campbell of Network put it last summer, fear promotes an unpatriotic lie of individualism. She reminds us the Constitution begins, we the people, not we who got here first, we the business owners, not even we the citizens. Uh, so I think obstructing or delaying uh, paths to citizenship uh, for the majority who we welcome in the marketplace, but not the voting booth, college campus, the DMV, um, risks making permanent this underclass. And I think that undermines not just religious or moral values, but pretty significant civil values and interests. Uh, so to close, on a conference call two weeks ago, Cecilia Munoz and Vice President Biden uh, cautioned faith-based activists that lawmakers in the House claim they need cover uh, to support comprehensive immigration reform. They said, we need to be able to say, my church made me do it. Um, <laughs> and so I think these surveys re results and the focus groups indicate the majority of their constituents actually favor action. So I know I focused on barriers and sin. Uh, but despite these barriers, I think we finally have a convergence across multiple divides of a practical economic security moral case. So perhaps reassurance of the people's sentiment, particularly as reform, gets, uh, reform votes get pushed into an election year, um, could offer legislators the cover uh, and the conscientization that they need. Thanks. It's, it's always tough to be the last because uh, there's not much to say after eloquent presentations and erudite presentations. So 
I'm just going to try to highlight a couple of points here. Thank you very much for the invitation to participate in, the, in this panel. Uh, and also, uh, I think thanks to the AAR for highlighting this issue. That's an important issue that sometimes uh, doesn't get uh, enough attention in academia. So let me first uh, start with an appreciation of the survey. I think uh, one of the things that the survey does, it, uh, it, it moves us beyond the sound bites and the charts labels and the polarized debates that I think have characterized, at least initially, the debates about immigration. And it shows a more nuanced picture of what Americans are thinking about immigration. So it's not just what pundits say, but also the kind of ways in which we talk about immigration. And um, I think to include a series of uh, conditions, and if you ask uh, what are the conditions, you know, under what, what conditions would you accept uh, you know, uh, legalization, um, I think begins to get to the issue that the issue is not simply one of amnesty versus deportation, which I think was the kind of bipolar frame that I think in the first, especially with the failure of, uh, during the Bush administration of passing immigration reform, that kind of discourse was a discourse that dominated and I think uh, had a tremendous effect in, uh, in making it difficult to advance any kind of rational conversation. And I think uh, the survey contributes in that way by adding uh, a lot of nuance into the, into the debate. So when you drill deep into what Americans are thinking and you really nuance the, the topic, you show that there's consistent uh, support for a path to legalization. I think this is an important message that needs to be highlighted uh, more as you go forth uh, um, with, the, with the survey. Uh, the second thing that I think is important to, to highlight is uh, that I think the survey points uh, directly to the paradox uh, of uh, widespread and steady support for comprehensive immigration reform, and uh, not just uh, um, among, uh, you know, six, the 63% support, but even if you break it down, 60% uh, Republicans, 55% uh, um, um, Evangelical Protestants, and even in a state like Arizona, which has been at the front line of uh, struggles around immigration, you have 64% uh, support for a path to legalization. So you have this paradox of this widespread support with the fact that you still have no immigration reform. And I think this is something that needs to uh, come, uh, needs to be fleshed out. Um, and needs to be uh, analyzed. Why is it that we have the situation, right? Um, and there are good signs that things might be changing. The change, the change in the number of people who realize that the system is broken from 23% to 34%. That's an important change also that should be highlighted. And then the decrease in people who think that the deportation should be the primary strategy from 21% to 18%. I think that's important. Um, but I think what, uh, what this paradox shows us in many ways that immigration uh, points to the brokenness of the political system, not just the brokenness of immigration, but the brokenness of the political system and how immigration is a, is, you know, has been held hostage by this brokenness of the system. And it has to do, I think, with uh, what's going on at the local level. And this is one of the qu questions that I want to ask uh, and perhaps urge you as you uh, work on the survey to drill even deeper beyond the state or below the state to talk about the local level where um, you have elected officials uh, passing all seri a series of ordinances that tend to be very anti-immigrant 
And so there's a lot of action that's taking place at the local level that seems to contradict this kind of general trend uh, towards support uh, for immigration. So it'd be interesting to know what's going on in a place, for example, like Marietta, Georgia, where I have done uh, research with my colleagues, uh, and you know, where you have very strong secure community support for the secure community policy. And I imagine people know about what the secure communities program is. So, but we can talk about that. So I think we need to, that would be my first point. I think we need to drill deeper uh, and get a finer granulation into the debate so that we go not only at the level of the states, uh, uh, but also you go at the level of counties, at the level of the, of the local governance where you have these ordinance, uh, ordinances limiting loitering, limiting the number of people who all can be in an apartment, all sorts of, uh, of, uh, of uh, laws that have been passed to uh, limit the kind of uh, conditions under which immigrants uh, live. So finer granulation, um, looking at places that are new destinations, uh, that are not used to uh, having large-scale immigration, um, places like North Carolina, South Carolina, right? Uh, and as we know, in South Carolina, we have SB 20, I believe, which is uh, one of the laws that has been one of the anti-immigrant laws. Uh, Georgia, uh, which has also its own, uh, its own state law. And so not just Florida, Ohio, and uh, Arizona, but I think it'd be interesting to look at these new destinations, uh, places like Alabama. And in addition to that, in the Midwest, which um, is an interesting looking at places like Indiana, and Utah uh, in, in the West. Right? Um, so this would be something that probably would uh, enhance the, uh, the survey, but I think the data that we have is important. Um, well, that's the first point, the finer granulation. The second question that I want to talk, and it's already, I think, um, has been referred by all the speakers, is the issue of values, um, the importance of religion here. And uh, uh, I'm not sure what to make about the, the fact that uh, Americans think that promoting national security should be uh, at the forefront of this moral guide towards immigration, particularly given the NSA disclosures. Uh, it, 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 it's troubling to think that there is this uh, ideology, to use Kristen's idea, of national security as being something that's taken for granted and that immigration is subsumed under uh, national security because that then leads to certain kinds of assumptions about immigrants and terrorism. And it seems to me that that kind of association is an association that perhaps we need to work at trying to differentiate. And this whole idea of immigrants as criminals or threats to the nation seems something that needs to be, I think, explored deeper. But on the other hand, you have the value of keeping families together, 84% next to the family of promo uh, promoting national security. So this shows a little bit, uh, a little bit of, a, of, a, of, a, of a schizophrenia. <laughs> on the one hand, you want to keep families together, but on the other hand, you have this, this uh, fear of, of the other, uh, of the foreign other uh, through the national security thing. So it's, it's really interesting to explore why those values are, are almost side, to side, side by side and almost equivalent. Um, and oh, I, okay, again, and I'm, I'm, I'm shocked uh, again, but perhaps not shocked, but perhaps I'm surprised by 
the fact that um, only 50% of people say that following the biblical example of, uh, of welcoming the stranger is important. And I'm wondering why that 50%, why, why is it that low? And looking at the survey here, uh, and looking at on page 13, um, hearing about immigration in the church, um, and it says here, most religious Americans are not hearing frequently about the issue of immigration in church. So there's an issue of perhaps the leaders are not doing their job. Is that a question that need, we need to? So is there a tension between the pew and the clergy? Um, what's going on uh, here? Is it that the clergy, um, which, I mean, if you look at all the denominational uh, um, religious denominations, they have great statements on immigration. They, you know, not only the Catholic Church, but Methodists, they have wonderful statements. Even going all the way up to the, to the Mormon Church, uh, which played an important role in the, covenant, in the Utah Covenant. They all have uh, very strong statements about immigration, but how is that, why is that not filtering down to the pews? Is it, that, is, is it not mentioned? Or when, it, when it's mentioned, is it that it's perceived as a political issue rather than a religious issue? And so is it a question of how to couch the message and how to present it in a way that it that it that it's uh, that presents a holistic picture of what a you know what a what a Christian or what a what a Jew should be? Um, I don't know, and I think this is an important question to raise with the denominations that perhaps they're not doing their job, and maybe it's just part of the secularizing situation in America that people are more spiritual than religious, and so less and less are listening to their to the clergy. And they're picking and choosing more and more what to believe. And therefore, if they hear the pastor talk about immigration, they just shut off and they are not interested even in hearing this because it's not part of the belief system that they're building. So um, I, I'm wondering what that is. It's, 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 it's a question that perhaps the panel wants to continue exploring. The third issue that I want to talk about is the issue of uh, Kristen talk about the, the deportation and the unawareness uh, that generally of the level of deportation that has been taking place and this emphasis on increased enforcement, which I see decreasing, but uh, it's still uh, present there. One of the things that I would like also to, to hear more is are Americans aware of the system of detention that exists, that is a widespread system of detention that has a whole political economy behind it, right? Uh, billions of dollars are going into building detention centers, and these detention centers are loosely regulated. Um, they're often located in areas that are very far away, that are uh, places that are in uh, small towns that, uh, that often benefit you know, through uh, the payment that is made by uh, housing immigrants, uh, undocumented immigrants. And so one of the questions that perhaps would be interesting in exploring is, why is, this, uh, why is this happening that people aren't aware? Are they unaware, uh, are they unaware of this? And if they were to be made aware of the politics and the cost of the system, would their opinion of uh, the issue of enforcement versus path to citizenship change? Uh, <clears throat> because these, uh, these detention centers um, have improved in the, in the last uh, few years, but there's still quite a bit of uh, problematic uh, um, uh, things happening in these centers. So I think my summing my, my intervention is that there's a lot that is great uh, about the survey 
and uh, it's whetted my appetite. And I would like to have finer granulation and some other topics to be investigated by a comp such a competent team. And I look forward to further waves of research from you guys. Thank you. Okay, so uh, thank you so much, all of you. We've got a lot of uh, great ideas and some uh, statistics on the table as well. We want to give a few minutes for the, the survey's creators uh, to give some thought back to these questions that are posed, and then we'll talk amongst uh, the audience as well. So, Robbie, would you care to you, – you can pass, but if you, I think you yeah. probably have a few things to say I'll, about it. I'll just say a couple things on the, um, on the values uh, piece of it. I think EJ has mentioned one of the like, more interesting things about the welcoming the stranger message that many groups, Jewish groups, evangelical groups, began framing their messages around, even leading with that message. And in fact, we did a, a kind of comprehensive mapping of what uh, everyone from the National Council of Churches to uh, the National Association of Evangelicals to the Reformed Jewish Movement to, you know, all the kind of tables that were set up on faith tables, what kinds of messaging they were using. And they were using a bunch of different things, but one common thread was some variety of this welcoming the stranger motif. And as we said, with interesting about it is uh, the two groups that that that, uh, that uh, message resonates more with um, uh, are white evangelicals and African-American Protestants, right? And the thing that those two groups have in common is that they're pretty tightly tied to text, to biblical text and biblical literacy. And so I think that's what's going on uh, there. But once you get beyond that, white mainline Protestants, Catholics, um, you know, other groups like that, those that appeal falls away pretty quickly, and I do think it's because of the sort of cognitive dissonance that the word stranger particularly has after people who aren't uh, biblically literate. The other thing I want to pick up is on Bill's point on generational divides. Um, another generational divide that I think is worth um, thinking about that was one of the more surprising things we found on, is on this value of continuing America's heritage as a nation of immigrants. Uh, so here we found a huge generational divide um, on this uh, between uh, seniors, uh, so seniors, so older Americans, much more likely than millennials, for example, to say that this value is extremely or very important when they're thinking about immigration reform. Seniors, 58 percent, uh, less than half, 45 percent of millennials saying this is very, uh, very extremely important. And what we found also were, were sort of regional pockets of, of differences as well. So in New England uh, and places that had been sort of historic receivers of uh, immigrant, immigrant, immigrant groups, uh, with big icons like the Statue of Liberty, uh, you know, had, uh, had actually, had, you could see it in the numbers, like a much more uh, tight, tightly tied uh, to this value uh, of a nation of immigrants. Also Catholics, uh, who uh, on our scores of uh, knowing your own family's immigration story, Catholics uh, much more be much better than Protestants at saying, are much higher levels of Catholics saying they still know their family's immigration story uh, than Protestants uh, do as well. That makes it, that makes a difference. And the the, uh, the last thing I just want to say is to flesh out this hearing about immigration uh, in church and sharpen it up a little bit. I mean, what I would say is that what our numbers show is that to take evangelicals for example, that majorities of evangelicals um, are with. Uh, the, the evangelical leadership and the evangelical immig immigration table, but not because of the leadership, right? Um, that's what the numbers say here, is that evangelicals are there, but they're not there because e the, the pastors have sort of led them there from their churches. Um, you know, there's a sort of like a convenient meeting, I guess, uh, and so, or, or maybe even a getting out in front of the parade, uh, you know, you might talk about it in a, in a way, because they're there, because we, we showed... Um, 
you know, uh, very, very few uh, say that they hear about uh, only about a quarter of regular church attenders say that their clergy leader speaks about, uh, or about a quarter say they do, but rarely, nearly half report uh, that their clergy uh, never uh, speaks about uh, the issue of immigration. In fact, it's only 16% uh, who say they hear about the immigration issue. Sometimes only 6% say often. Uh, they hear about the issue of immigration. And this is among frequent church attenders uh, in, in the survey. In fact, the only group uh, where a majority uh, uh, say that their clergy leader speaks out the issue of immigration, even sometimes, are Hispanic Catholics. And even there, it's only 54% of Hispanic Catholics who say that, that they uh, hear about it uh, sometimes or, uh, or often or, um, or sometimes. Uh, so I think it, it's, it's certainly not resonating down at the sort of local uh, congregational uh, level. And yet... Uh, every major, every major religious group in the country is there, uh, so there's certainly not a cause and effect uh, relationship here, but maybe a happy confluence or even a sort of get out in front of the parade uh, kind of motif. Yeah, EJ. Yeah, I just want to make a couple of quick points because I'm unfortunately I can't save for this discussion. First, when I walked in this morning, I didn't realize I belonged to an oppressed uh, minority group. Uh, I've heard all this commentary about pundits, and I think I may be the only card-carrying pundit uh, up here. And I just want you to know, the, well, the, no, but you're more of an, you're a higher level intellectual, even though you now have a column, you have a column EJ, I for. I uh, to the Sanskrit um, uh, understanding of pundits. The, um, the, I, I, I say this with great respect for you, Bill. Um, I just want you to know, like members of oppressed groups, I've internalized all the criticisms and may even agree with a lot of them. Um, I just, a couple of. Uh, points. Um, just on Manuel's point about the stranger, it is a fascinating thing. And yes. oddly, I think that the <clears throat> negative response to the word stranger reminds us of how radical the biblical language actually is. Uh, it is radical language. Uh, and it called upon people to do something that probably didn't come naturally to them uh, either. Uh, on the other hand, I do think that there are, and Robbie sort of found, uh, what was that ad campaign you found uh, the, the, about strangers? You, uh, I, I remember you found some. Oh, yeah, there's like stranger danger public service campaigns and, you know, that, that run on, you know, public television. And so a link to crime and, yeah, and the exactly. like. So it's a, it's a complicated story. And um, as I say, you know, Robbie is a pragmatist on these things, I think, which is why his research was interesting, which is, you know, what, the good news is that for evangelicals who are very biblical, they are the people who actually get the message more uh, than any, what, anyone else, which for those of us who are Catholic, it's a reminder of our complicated relationship with Scripture. Um, second, I, I, I just wanted to respond to uh, Kristen's really interesting um, talk. And I, I was thinking that a critical approach might lead to a research and scholarship and also a response of sympathetic understanding. And when I'm talking about sympathetic understanding here, I'm actually talking about sympathetic understanding of people who may have qualms about immigration uh, reform. And I was thinking as you were talking, there are at least three concerns there that people on the other side of the issue have some understanding of. One is the value of community. Uh, and progressives are, uh, you know, they're not alone in this, but progressives talk a lot about community. Um, and the worries about what happens to community in a diverse situation, these are not new worries. And yes, these can go totally haywire, lead to discrimination, segregation, uh, redlining, all kinds of things. 
On the other hand, this desire for forms of solidarity is quite uh, understandable, and I think there's research that suggests that community is of uh, particular material value to lower-income groups who don't have, um, you know, for whom it is one of their most valuable resources. The counter to that, and this is where, in three areas where religious groups come in, is religion, while it can divide people, also creates real senses of solidarity across lines of class, but particularly of race, of citizenship status, um, and I think the role of religious institutions there is very important. The second is this sense of, uh, of injustice. Um, now, on the one hand, you're absolutely right. There is a deep contradiction that on the one hand, um, uh, we, the, a lot of low-wage labor is brought into the country essentially because the economic system needs it at the same time that those folks are then treated as being as illegals in that terrible term. Um, and that, con you know, that contradiction has to uh, be resolved. On the other hand, um, the sense of injustice felt by uh, those who are law-abiding, particularly um, those who are in sharp competition over work and wages uh, at the lower rung of the, of the economy. Um, there has been, um, while the African-American community is actually quite supportive of immigration reform, there has been real conflict um, over this, over whether immigration has a negative impact on uh, wages. And, you know, the research suggests that it's small, but there is some uh, impact. Um, and so, again, I think here uh, the religious groups have an opportunity um, to respond by raising, um, you know, issues of social justice, um, um, you know, connected to minimum wages, living wages and the like. There are other ways of addressing this very um, uh, legitimate, uh, uh, legitimate concern. Um, and lastly, I always think this should be put on the table. I want Robbie to poll it someday. Um, there is the whole question of how having a large population of non-citizens uh, undercuts the rights of citizens. Because if you have a whole large group of people in our nation uh, who have no recourse, what does that do to the rights of others. And I've always been surprised that an issue which I do think unites people across current lines of division um, is not raised, but Robbie's research will probably show it polls just as badly as welcoming the stranger. <laughs> and I, I apologize uh, for having to teach my students and deal with the beltway, but uh, it's really been great to be with you and meet some new friends today. So let's, thank, you. Uh, thank you, EJ, before you take off. Thank you. Did, as you're packing up, I'm going to read just one quick thing that goes along with your, your messages here. We, we did some focus groups because we did want to hear like how people were talking about this and how people were uh, hearing about this. So this is from an evangelical woman in Orlando, Florida, who experienced a lot of change in her community. She said, there's these little communities. There's like a grocery store that I don't feel comfortable going into uh, because I know that's not my grocery store because I'm white, I'm American, I'm not Hispanic. They're going to look at me when I walk into that store and say, why am I there? Right? Sort of a sense of displacement and they trying to sort of wrap their heads around the real changes. Yeah, there's a, before Bill uh, has a chance to comment, I want to remind those of you who came in later, there's uh, copies of the most recent version of this survey we're discussing in the alcove in the back of the room, and you're welcome to go pick it up. It's all online as well, and you, the website was up at Public Religion Research. But uh, Bill, would you like to uh, respond? He's going to explain why he is a pundit, why he would want to join this class. I don't know. <laughs>
<laughs> this is a Groucho Marx moment, I guess. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, just a, you know, since I'm I'm eager to get to the either eager to get to the wider discussion, uh, you know, to Manuel's very good question, which uh, I actually had jotted down. I had jotted down some notes, but then in the interest of time suppressed. So <laughs> this gives me an opportunity to resuscitate. If if support, and I think this survey is impregnable and accurate on this point, if support is large, broad-based, enduring over time, and robust to additional information, that is, support that actually gets stronger the more you learn about the proposed right. legislation, which regrettably is not true for all laws, as, <laughs> as we're learning to our distress, uh, you know, then why isn't comprehensive right. immigration reform happening? Very good question. Okay, and I don't have a comprehensive explanation, but here, is thing, here are some things to consider. Number one, the survey found that although there is a strong majority in favor of immigration reform, it is not in the minds of most Americans a high priority issue. Right? And that makes, that makes a difference. It makes a difference in the kind of advocacy that occurs, and it also makes a difference in the level of felt urgency among elected officials. You know, a, this is not a trivial issue, but it's nowhere near the top of the list. So that's point number one. Point number two is the point that, you know, that EJ made about institutional differences between the Senate and the House. We are all living in James Madison's box. Right? We are all living in a constitutional republic of divided powers and divided so much that even the legislative power is divided and the House and the Senate are very differently structured intentionally. Uh, and in this case, that makes, that makes a big difference. And it's not just gerrymandering. It's not just the fact that CDs are smaller. It's also the fact that the American population is sorting itself out so that you would actually have to gerrymander, in most cases, for diversity, mm. right? Homogeneous districts are not the consequences of gerrymandering for the most part. They are the consequences of the way populations have sorted themselves out, you know, with, you know, with many <coughs> minorities packed into a relatively small number of urban, urban, urban districts. Uh, which brings me to the third point, and that is that if you, if you want to move people who are on elected officials who are on the wrong side of the issue from your standpoint to the right side, it helps a lot if they reside in swing districts. But you know, research has demonstrated you know, a steadily and sharply declining number of swing districts. So if you're trying to persuade, let us say, House Republicans to switch sides, pickings are pretty slim. Right? You know, the opposition to immigration reform is the safe position and the safe to vote where they are. And finally, up until very recently, and this point is malleable, you know, this, this point can respond to political, political organization, the intensity level of people opposed to immigration reform has exceeded the intensity level of people in favor. That may be starting to change, but our political system responds not just to raw numbers 
even votes, let alone public opinion surveys, but also to intensity of advocacy because that translates into <coughs> propensity to vote. Vote against someone who's against you. So that's, that's, to, Man, that's to Manuel. Now, you know, to, you know, to Kristen's very in, interesting, interesting remarks. And here, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump into the unknown. <laughs> uh, because, you know, as I listened to your remarks, you know, it raised a classic question, which is a very urgent question right now. What happens when prophetic theology enters, meets with, and contends with the world, right? I mean, that's, you know, and because, you know, sometimes garbed in the language of social science, what you gave us was an exercise of prophetic theology, when you get right down to it. Uh, and here is the practical problem. As I said, I, I just want to be as direct about this as possible. If you go to a group of your fellow citizens who may be persuadable on the immigration issue. And your message is, you are complicit in grave evil. Repent and change your ways. <laughs> I don't think you're going to get very far, right? There is a real, there's a real disjunction here between the language of prophetic theology and, I would add, the social science categories that you invoked you know, which, you know, which strike me as, you know, which strike me as being, you know, morally infused and inflected from the get-go. These are not just analytical categories. You know, these are, these are, these are normative research categories that seem well designed to lead to a partic particular result. So there is a persuasion issue here. Even theologically, there's a persuasion issue because I suspect I don't need to tell you that the concept of social sin is not necessarily consensus theology in America, right? And it works very well in some theological subcommunities, but it will grate on the sensibilities of many others, uh, including, I suspect, a majority of Protestants and not just evangelicals, although mainstreamers may be, may be, more, may be more sympathetic to the argument. And I'd make one. I'd make one last observation, which is really a crystallization of the points that you know that that EJ made, and that is, it seems to me that social science and even prophecy should begin with and works best with a prior effort of sympathetic imagination. Why is it that the people who, from one standpoint, you believe are complicit in grave evil, believe what they believe and act the way, and act the way they act? And is it simply, simply a, compat, a concatenation of unjustifiable fears and irrepressible sentiments? Or is there something more at stake? You know, can a person who sincerely asks, what does justice require in this situation, come out with a different answer, right? And to the, to the extent that the answer to that question is yes, then we have a much more complex discussion than a straightforward prophetic theology 
might suggest or generate. So that just off the top of my head. Kristen, I think you deserve a moment to uh, <laughs> s stick it back, and then, we'll, uh, and then we'll turn to the audience if you'd like to. Thank you, Bill, for raising those very important questions. I mean, this is at the center of, of the question of prophetic witness, right? So if you, don't, if you would mind for one second, and then we'll bring the audience sure. in. Sure. Um, thank you for your diving into the unknown, as you put it. Um, and I certainly agree. I, I wouldn't advocate or start with um, shaming <laughs> as a mode of political persuasion. I agree. I think I was just reading the polling data and, and saying this represents some interesting kind of patterns that that don't even get uncovered if we use particular value categories. I wonder if I could suggest, and so in other settings I've started more, as you say, with synthetic imagination, kind of narrative of some of my uh, undocumented students or some of the people I've met at the border, and, um, and as you say, rightly, taking really seriously the um, reasonable people disagreeing, people of good faith disagreeing on this pretty contentious issue, and where those fears and concerns come from, um, rather than kind of dismissing anybody opposing comprehensive immigration as uh, racist and, and xenophobic and, and uh, unjust. Um, I agree. I wonder if we could think of prophetic theology um, in, in terms of truth-telling, at least in, in one respect, to get at some of the other comments that were made. Um, so the, the questions, that's where I found the survey data about the very low numbers of people, as you say, who knew the truth about what's in the actual legislation or the numbers of deportations, uh, or Manuel brought, bringing up the immigration industrial complex. Like, I think um, the financial stakes in this broken system, for one, are considerable. So detained uh, beds and filled buses <laughs> help the bottom line. So kind of looking at those financial stakes, and as you rightly point out, what might citizens who know that, kind of might they think differently instead of just drinking in rule of law, which is a significant value, but sometimes functions ideologically, kind of the conflation of security and immigration issues, um, even issues of just transparency, not just economic idolatry, uh, in terms of what we're finding out about some of these privatized detention centers. Um, so, some, so examining how some of the the facts look, the facts in terms of the, the legislation on the table, the requirements for citizenship, uh, but also the function of some of this rhetoric. I think that's where I wanted to bring in briefly Sin to say, we do raise up some things as, uh, as complicity and evil, but when we keep the immigration paradigm in terms of hospitality, even as EJ is saying, subversive hospitality, you know, it's, it's pretty demanding if you actually look at the biblical welcoming the stranger language, or if we keep it in terms of charity-based model, we never even ask about wage theft or root causes of migration or U.S. complicity. So I, I think I just wanted to say let's surface some of those in terms of justice rather than hospitality. I also think oh, I had two other brief points based on all of the things you had to say, um, but we should probably open it out. I guess to EJ's point about the value of community, I think um, that the generational divide you focused on earlier also comes up here. So I think certainly churches have potential for uh, fostering solidarity across these various lines, religion, class, race, uh, citizenship, um, and yet you do see these di generational differences that your survey bore out even in religious contexts, right? Maybe uh, when I came two generations ago, I had to learn the language and we had to assimilate, and now there's masses in every language in my home parish, and 
the rules seem different. So I think there are some kind of tension, generational tensions even in, in forging those solidarities where, again, kind of sympathetic imagination, language and approaches um, certainly help more than structural sin shaming approaches. Thanks. Well, let's bring in the, uh, the audience. We have microphones on the floor, but if, if you can speak loudly, um, then we'll get started. Why don't we, we have a number of questions. We'll just go here, here, and here to start with. So, sir, go ahead. Yeah, why don't you use the microphone? It'll be a lot easier for everyone in the room to hear. And ma'am, if you'd like to, uh, yes, you, why don't you line up first at the microphone here for uh, this late, this woman in the scarf was, was in front of you, sir. Thank you. Okay, but, go ahead. But it's not, oh, it is not. Okay. Yeah. Um, here's a fundamental point of the sociologist Saskia Sassen, who does globalization, global cities, and also immigration. I was really struck by this fundamental point, so this is what I want to present. Um, a universal point, all undocumented immigration begins with the host country pulling people in. And she does that on an international level. So Japan has an undocumented problem. Uh, Western Europe has a documented problem, undocumented problem. We do. But always the... Um, it begins with the host country pulling people in. Then networks get created, and then the host country gets into a point where oh, we don't want to do this anymore, and they try to shut it off, and they can't. So if you begin with that fundamental point, suddenly the burden of who's wrong in this arrangement isn't just the undocumented worker who's come into the country, it's us. But we begin to treat the whole problem as, well, this is our house and you've come into here taking stuff from us without realizing we, in a sense, as a people, started it. Now, okay, so I'm just wondering, would you agree with that point first? And then well, second, let's, I, let's okay. try to be brief. If you have a second okay. point, make it very quickly. We okay, have well, then it seems to me that's a much more effective um, informational or teaching tool than... Um, sort of the prophetic approach. Okay, thank you. Would someone like to take that? Uh, yes. Let me, let me try to. I, you know, I think, I think you're um, you're right that sometimes there's a this perception, especially at the beginning of the conversation on immigration, where the the issue was framed in terms of amnesty versus deportation, or lawbreakers versus you know people coming in here legally. You know, my parents came in legally here. They came, you know, they waited online. Why is it that these people don't go to the back of the line? Of course, there's no long line, right, to go back to. Um, so, um, but part of the, the issue here is that it, just as the, as the prophetic tradition is difficult to advance, it has its own pitfalls. A structuralist analysis, too, of immigration tends to also fly over the face of people. People tend to want to focus on the human face, uh, and that's why the dreamers have been, I think, effective, because they have gone out front and they have said, look, we're here. Arrest us. We are real human beings. We are Americans like you, right? And we have a history, and we can tell you the history. And they give their personal testimony, and that personal testimony is compelling. And I think Americans function with that individualist narrative of the face, you know, connecting with the narrative. And that's very effective in terms of mobilizing a kind of moral discourse, more effective than a structural analysis that we may agree with sociologically, 
but it's a theoretical discussion and a historical discussion that may lose a lot of people in the process. So it's a question of pastoral and pedagogical devices to be able to get into a moral conversation that is persuasive and politically, um, uh, you know, immobilizes people politically. Good. Yes, ma'am. Hi. My name is Katie Dame from Philadelphia. I'm a sociologist. Thank you so much, Robbie, for a great report and to the whole panel. Um, I was, I'm sorry, uh, EJD, I'm left. I'm interested in the the split between the evangelicals and the um, welcoming the stranger evangelicals and what the point of demarcation are. is this uh, generational, is this gender driven or whatever. And then secondly, uh, on my own research on uh, gun violence, I'm wondering what the correlations are uh, with the, um, particularly the value survey with uh, attitudes toward gun laws and gun Robbie, do you want to speak to this? You have Bill? a bunch of data. We do, yeah. Um, so I, I can uh, thank, thank you for that. Um, we can certainly talk afterward on the on the team. We, we have um, a, a great set of data in 2010, and then another set of data that we just did um, sorting out. In 2010, we were primarily trying to sort out the relationship between uh, the Tea Party and evangelicals. And what we found there uh, was that about half of those who are associated with the Tea Party. In our surveys, we typically find about one in ten Americans are associated with the Tea Party. That's been consistent across the last three years since we've been measuring it. Um, about one in ten Americans are part of the Tea Party. About half of that group um, is uh, say that they are part, uh, can also consider themselves a part of the Christian right political movement, right? So are pretty uh, tightly tied into the, the Christian right political movement. Uh, slightly less than that are, are evangelical uh, themselves, but a huge group of, of the sort of Tea Party groups are evangelical. Um, we can give you the exact overlap, um, but what you tend to see is on issues like immigration in particular, where there is a kind of humanitarian angle or compassion angle, um, that, I, that you do then begin to see daylight between the evangelicals that are connected with the Tea Party, who tend to draw harder lines and tend to be more of a law and order crowd uh, than uh, evangelicals who aren't tied to the Tea Party, which tend to uh, sort of lean into the compassion angle, on, I think, on many of these uh, uh, Issue. So we, and we have a big enough survey um, that we can actually tease these out. The immigration survey has 4,500 respondents, so we'll, we can you know actually tease out some of these things. I'd be happy to talk to you after. But I think in broad strokes, that's what we tend to see: is law and order versus compassion on an issue like this tends to kind of create some daylight between those two groups. Anything? Uh, any correlation with the gun violence that you had? You know, I don't think I've got anything in front of me on on, on the gun violence. I'm not sure. If we I know in that survey we didn't ask anything on gun violence to correlate. So. Okay, great. Thank you. Yes, sir. Hi. Um, I just have a Could question. Could you introduce yourself? Please. Oh, I'm Jack Jenkins, a uh, writer researcher with the Center for American Progress. Okay. And uh, one of the, I've done a lot of writing around immigration reform, and one of the things I'm curious about is there was an assertion earlier that um, religious groups shouldn't use explicitly religious arguments to advocate for immigration reform, but should stick to pragmatic arguments. And I'm trying to figure out what that means, because I saw those results, actually, there were several religious arguments that seem, that I read as religious arguments that seemed to pull well. Like 82% said that the dignity of all people was, you know, a, a, something they support as a main argument for immigration reform. And I hear that articulated in a lot of spaces as, you know, all God's children, that sort of thing. And also the idea of breaking up families. Um, actually, Spencer Bacchus from Alabama, who's a Republican congressman in Alabama, when he was asked by his constituents why he supports immigration reform, he said, as a Christian, I can't break up families. 
So I just want to tease out, when you say that, do you mean the, taking those arguments and putting them in, in a religious context, or do you mean um, making religious arguments um, only in religious context and removing them when you're in any other field, just making the pragmatic argument? This was Bill, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, very, very good question, and it gives me an opportunity, as they say in the hallowed halls of Congress, to revise and extend my remarks. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, what I was saying, I think, in, in a kind of shorthand, is that invoking explicitly biblical arguments, you know, text-based, so to speak, will be of limited universe, limited utility and effectiveness on a broad basis, although it may work with certain selected groups. There are, there are certain kinds of values that are consistent with most religious traditions, but also have found a place into secular discourse. Those are very ro robust and effective values. You don't have to be religious in a traditional sense to affirm the dignity of every human being. You know, there is a long tradition of secular philosophy from the Stoics through Immanuel Kant, et cetera, that does exactly the same thing without recourse to a creator god, et cetera, et cetera. So the values that are twofers are particularly useful. You know, the, ones that, the ones that could be expressed in either religious language uh, or secular language. My point was that explicitly religious arguments, particularly you know, speaking, speaking as a Jew, no single invocation is repeated more frequently in our texts than to do X with or for the stranger because remember, you were strangers. Remember, don't forget that you were there, and by the way, it might happen to you again. Mm -hmm. So you'll know, think twice before you assume that the stranger is the other. You know, we have a reasonable chance of ending up strangers again. So, yeah, that's that's the, that's the point I was making, and I think it may have been a less comprehensive point than than you heard me to be making. Good. Uh, yes, sir. Two observations. Could on you introduce yourself, please? Uh, Mitchell Tyner, International Religious Liberty Association. Two. Uh, observations on questions that the panel identified in the data, and one question about something that didn't happen. I'll take that one first. I'm thinking about the uh, lack of any discussion on the political and practical ramifications of having an unassimilated large group in any society. I'm thinking specifically about the Turks in Germany, uh, multiple generation, not fully assimilated either there or in Turkey. Uh, there are some things we could learn from that. Second, uh, one member of the panel seemed puzzled by uh, the fact that uh, people who lived in places with very few immigrants were the least interested in uh, uh, immigration reform I would, and seemed most con concerned with cultural change. And I would suggest that's part of the fact that even there, their, uh, their view of cultural change is not just local, it's conditioned by mass media, in fact, Fox News, uh, political commentators from here and there. It is not based anymore on local eyewitness uh, experience. And finally, the uh, question of why my age and demographic group would hesitate to say that things are better now than they were 50 years ago. 
let's get real about the problem. If, and you identify white males as most likely to say that, we grew up in a time when being a white male was a privileged position. Now, whether you liked that or not, whether you could defend it morally, you knew that. And if you take two of those guys today, one of which became an academic and one did not, and you ask the academic, are we better off today, we will, uh, by habit, make a list of all the things that are better, including enhanced uh, equality for women, for minorities, a great many other things, and say, yes, we're better off. The other guy, the good old boy, whose week focuses around his uh, tailgate party after his son's football game on Friday night, knows that although his father used his superior socioeconomic status to get a job in the trades or in manufacturing that he cannot now, and, and he lifted his uh, family into a middle-class status that his son is having a hard time maintaining, he's not going to celebrate the loss of that status. I don't know of any previously privileged group in any, any society that has had a parade in honor of their reduced status okay. or of those that he perceives as contributing to it. Great. Okay. Who would like to take up the, I mean, Robbie, you tailgate all the time, so maybe that's your... Yeah, I'll, I'll just uh, <laughs> jump in on a couple things. You know, one of the, I think, uh, things that we were, um, I would say I was maybe a little surprised at, um, just looking at some previous data, in our March survey, we asked a whole battery of questions about uh, perceptions of immigrants, whether they're changing the country for the better or for the worse, whether they were threatening American culture or not. And so it goes to your first point about assimilation and integration, and you mentioned integration uh, as an issue as well. I think one of the things that the portrait, the overall portrait that certainly our March and depth survey to ask those questions out was not of a anti, largely anti-immigrant America, right? It was Americans who certainly had some concerns, but for example, we had um, more Americans than not saying that immigrants are changing the country for the better than to say they were changing it for the worse. Uh, when we asked about whether, to the integration point, uh, whether uh, immigrants today think of themselves as Americans, uh, as immigrants did in the past, uh, by a margin of two to one, Americans say uh, that immigrants today believe that, uh, agree that uh, Americans, uh, immigrants today think of themselves as Americans, much like immigrants of previous era. Six and ten uh, uh, say they believe that. So it's kind of interesting, you know, not a, a sort of largely anti-immigrant or fears about, uh, you know, great fears about um, non-assembling, uh, kind of largely uh, welcoming maybe, you know, with some, I would, I would characterize it as sort of open but with some concerns is kind of the overall portrait that we have of America overall. Yeah, Chris, I would just Yeah, Kristen, uh, speak for all women in America when you respond, please. <laughs> <laughs> Allow me. Thank <laughs> um, I just lost my train of thought. I guess to your initial point, here you are. Uh, I would just say that's precisely why I was trying to hold up social sin, not because it's an effective shaming or persuasion mechanism, but because I think it alerts us to the, the role those um, kind of cultural frames play in shaping our perception, even on pending legislation, right? So, I, of course, the role of media portrayals, that was kind of one of my examples. I think I was just struck that the survey data seemed to really bear that out more than messages in church or commitment to human rights or the national heritage. So I would just affirm what, what you're noticing. Could we turn to, do you have a real brief for? I, uh, yeah, okay. I, I, Good. I, could keep, I could keep it brief. I, I agree with you about white man. 
you know, I underscored my surprise that even more women think changes have been worse than men. What's that about? I don't know. Uh, point number two, you know, I think almost everybody agrees with you about the danger of unassimilated groups. You know, Turks in Germany are a great classic negative example. And interestingly, almost no Americans you know, in the survey were in favor of an intermediate status for immigrants. That was our big, you know, biggest headline finding. Two-thirds say they ought to be just like us. About a quarter say they're not just like us, they ought to leave. And the number in the middle who say, uh, who say, well, yeah, I guess we should allow them to stay, but we should create permanent barriers to their becoming more like us, very weak support for that. I think that's good news. That was, a, that was a topic of a New York Times piece uh, recently, right, on that very question within the immigrant population. So it's interesting. Let's, let's turn to more questions. Though. Yes, ma'am. Hi, good morning. My name is Afroza Hussain, and I'm a graduate student at Harvard. And as a first-generation immigrant, I'm both interested in this personally and academically. And my question is, what do you think about DACA that President Obama signed two summers ago, and what place it has in the immigration debate? Professor Vasquez, would you like to start? No, tell me more about this. I, I, I want to hear more. Well, it seems like a band-aid to the whole problem of immigration in America right now. So it's a temporary residency, I think, right. for undocumented immigrants who came as children. So how is this the future of immigration reform in America, do you think? Like we're going to do everything piecemeal in this fragmented fashion, or mm. is this an anomaly? Oh, it's, it's definitely inadequate. So you have two questions here. It's inadequate, but is this the future? You asked the first question. Is this the future in which politics will be, will be done? Right, for immigration debate. I think the first piece that is likely, if you go piecemeal, the first piece that is likely to be advanced, and this is something that was not remarked here, is the enforcement piece. Um, I was surprised to see that it, a majority, right, supported uh, the increase in the number of Border Patrol the doubling of uh, the Border Patrol, isn't it, uh, it's Robert? Divided, but, uh, yeah. It's divided, but, it's, uh, but, the, but the majority supports. Yeah, the, yeah, and so that goes again with the issue of this national security question that it seems to me that even though I think is a welcoming, uh, you're right, that there's a, there's a, it's a welcoming America that with some restrictions, the issue of security, though, is a central issue. And I think if we go piecemeal, that the enforcement piece, I'm afraid, will be the one that will make, go forward. And it's a bottomless pit because how much enforcement is enough enforcement? And this is the game that the Obama administration tried to play at the beginning, trying to show that they were strong on enforcement. And so I'm going to deport more people than the Bush administration to show the Republicans that I'm serious about immigration, and therefore they can come to the table and talk about the path to, to citizenship. But that never happened because the bar keeps getting higher in terms of enforcement. So if we go piecemeal, my fear is that uh, enforcement will dominate the conversation and there won't be any possibility for anything that would be permanent. And so we might have to go into a temporary situation where you might have this, this underclass that is built in, uh, the, in the process. So uh, that's my fear. And if we go piecemeal, so all the more, all the more, all the need, all more need to, to be, uh, to push for a comprehensive immigration reform. Just one sentence. Uh, two sentences. Number one, 
you know, policy by executive order is what you get when the political system is as yeah. stalemated as mm -hmm. it is right now. Number two, I have to keep on reminding myself, because I'm constantly surprised, about how much 9-11 changed America. Yep. Right? That's why that national security finding is at the top. And I dramatically, as a scholar, dramatically underestimated yes. you know, the pervasiveness and the enduringness of those changes. And it's something that everybody analytically and politically now needs to take into account. Yeah. Yes. Jeremy. Uh, Jeremy Cruz, Boston College. Um, I have a couple, kind of a general response to the question. General response is to uh, Kristen poisoning the well with her prophetic uh, rhetoric. <laughs> I, I think that it's important to distinguish that prophetic language as a mode of truth-telling rather than shaming it, which has already been brought up. But I'm wondering if, if the interaction that happened there points to how difficult it is to talk specifically about, to specifically do eth ethnic and racial truth-telling. Um, and I, I guess I'll just give one example, which is the... the over 50, under 50 dynamic, which it's interesting to look at the nostalgia. It's interesting to say, well, why women? Is what's going on there really not about generation, but about ethnicity and race? That there are much more uh, people of color, much more people, many more people who don't identify as Anglo in the younger generation. Is, is, is that the more clear dividing line that what we're looking at than simply generational? And does naming that reality poison the well or become uh, politically unhelpful? Uh, my my question, and maybe it's maybe there's a connection, uh, is that if we look, we can get a lot of hope from saying, look, the broader public wants to shorten shorten the time period for the path to citizenship, wants to shorten the financial requirements to or the, the lessen the penalty, et cetera, et cetera. But if we look at the border security thing, it makes it, it makes me ask, is what's going on here simply a pragmatic, short-term, long-term game mm. that's an anti-immigrant game? Will trade citizenship or path to citizenship short-term for the prospect of basically sealing off the border long-term? And I haven't heard as much conversation about that kind of short-term, long-term. Very good questions. Uh, mm -hmm. Professor Vasquez, you were vigorous at the end there. Do you want to um, – yeah, I mean, I think, I think the issue – yeah, I mean, I, I'm uh, – let's just say that I'm overall um, pessimistic about the issue, uh, um, even though I think there are a lot – there's a lot of room for optimism in the survey. And I think it's an issue that needs to be the issue of enforcement and the issue of sealing the border. Um, I'm dismayed by those uh, statistics, and um, it, it, it just points to a kind of inward-looking America, I think, um, that um, is threatened by um, its uh, – on the one hand, I think it's, it's, a, it's a good move in terms of, like, We've been doing things in the world that have, you know, not made the world better. And I think there's a sen certain sense in which we need to reflect on that. But there's also a kind of inward looking that's a little more reactive. And I think uh, the period 
is eerily similar to the period of the 1920s. There are some patterns here that are that are that need to be studied historically, and so I'm concerned that um, that that uh, isolationist mentality might uh, still be there, not just a simply nostalgia that's generational, but that it's uh, a way in which thinking, you know, the role of America in the world, and it's a complex conversation that 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 is. I don't know. I think the survey points to some things, but it's a, it's a larger conversation that needs to be taken care of. And that's why, even though I disagree totally with Samuel Huntington's uh, response to the question he asks, he wrote this book called Who Are We, right? Um, in which he basically um, uh, articulated a nativist response to, to the... It was a clash of civilizations for America. So he gave the wrong response, but he asked the right question. I think that's where the immigration debate should start for me. It should start with the idea of who are we? You know, uh, you know how have we changed? And you know, what is the role of America, in the place of America in the world, given the complexities of the world, given the complexities of our own population, demographic, racial shifts? And as long as we don't ask that question, uh, we can be um, moving the chairs around a little bit. But um, the deeper question is, who are we? And uh, I wish that that question could be asked. But the debate is so heated and so much, you know, in terms of the pragmatics of the politics that we don't ask the real philosophical question that I think should be driving our immigration policy as we rethink it. Yeah, go ahead. Can I just quickly add on to that? I think I don't know where Jen went. I think this is a, an important layer in terms of the nostalgia and the generation. So anti-Latino hate crimes up the first decade of the last of the first century by forty percent. And I'm from California. In California, up fifty percent from two thousand nine to two thousand ten. So to ignore that reality, um, I think, makes no sense, uh, even if it poisons the well. Uh, in our political conversations. Also, in terms of effectiveness, I think it's far easier to mass market fear or bias uh, than cross-racial solidarity or new understandings of defining American, kind of what it means to be American. So it's a slow-going but really necessary process. It doesn't fit into a soundbite very easily mm -hmm. um, or, or get a lot of call-ins. Um, but I, I just want to also share, I think that's why the, the human cost of the border surge doesn't even register in mass media. So since 1994, over 6,000 deaths at the U.S.-Mexico border, um, probably five to 10 times that many experts say because of the way the climate treats remains. But um, as of last summer, that was the same as the U.S. soldier fatalities in Iraq and Afghanistan combined. But I don't think, I don't think whether border search security is a 9-11 completion, whether it was a political maneuver to get enough people to sign on to the Senate bill at the last minute. I don't think the human cost or the racialized dynamics even service in our national conversation. Yes, ma'am. Hi, I'm Laura Alexander from the University of Virginia. Um, and I have a question which actually may follow right from what you just said, Dr. Heyer. I was thinking about our conversation regarding um, persuading folks, either that comprehensive immigration reform is something that should be done or that it's a higher priority than um, people sometimes take it to be. And I was actually just wondering, um, especially Dr. Vasquez and Dr. Heyer, but certainly all the panelists, if you have 
success stories or best practices in terms of working, whether it's within churches or in the public sphere, um, of, of talking in a way that is persuasive, um, whether it helps to start, as you said, as you um, implied, Dr. Vasquez, with sort of individual stories and moving to a structural level. Um, and part of the question is um, how to be persuasive in a way that helps people to think on both an individual and a structural level, whether it's about social sin or structural injustice, depending on how you want to word it. Thanks. Thank you. Sure. I would just uh, start by saying, yes, beginning with personal narrative, I just I really think is far more effective. Um, I'm now repenting for focusing on sin about five times in the Q&A. <laughs> it's a miracle book. Um, and that is, in fact, what I do, whether in my writing or with the students. Um, I think it's difficult because there's no substitute for encounter. Yeah. Certainly hearing a first-hand experience, second-hand. Uh, but I do find, at least with my own students, once they're out in the community, once they're doing a community-based learning placement, uh, whether helping for a citizenship exam or teaching ESL, um, really no amount of secondary sources can kind of touch the imagination, touch the heart in the way that personal encounter uh, can do. So I feel like that's very transformative. And however we can convey that, uh, whether through dreamer stories or um, facilitating encounter, the better. I would also say, uh, and this goes to the person, I don't know where he's sitting, who raised the question of using religious language or not. Um, I think I've been surprised by the desire for some of those connections, even in legislative or kind of secular halls. So um, I, I always think about we need to purge, as you were saying, kind of the thickly theological or thickly scriptural reasoning. And yet we did a, an event in uh, April for congressional staff on the House and Senate side that really came from staffers saying, I'm evangelical, but my tradition doesn't really have a, a comprehensive, systematic look at the morality of immigration reform. Can you come present the Catholic paradigm for this? And even leading up to it, I kept saying, so I shouldn't use scripture, right? Like I shouldn't, they said, no, we're really hungry for how this is a family values issue. You know, and um, I think there, a lot of narrative was important too, kind of brought the sole of a shoe from the desert because you just feel like the Christine Halls of of this gorgeous Senate office building can't touch the reality too often. But I, I've been surprised by the, the hunger, even among lawmakers, for, for narrative, whether personal or religious. Just make one quick comment. I mean, one of the things that I think this data uh, and most I think, nuanced public opinion data does, it reminds you of how differently and um, sort of multiply situated everyone is, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, race, gender, uh, social networks, uh, how often you're connected to a religious congregation, like all of these things are in the mix for people. I think sometimes we, you sort of put on the messaging hat and you sort of think, oh, I'm going to sort of cite the right, you know, verse if I'm in an evangelical session or I'm going to cite the right moral Catholic social teaching if I'm in the Catholic church or I'm going to cite the right, you know, it's going to be this sort of magic thing, button that sort of fires the right neuron that pushes the finger to push the button, you know, it's a sort of very mechanical uh, kind of understanding, and I, and I think, um, you know, sort of understanding that, like, you know, people are feeling like this, you know, woman in the grocery store, right, mm. is uh, sort of struggling with feeling alienated at her local grocery store. At the same time, you know, she's hearing maybe a message that talks about her being open to people different from herselves in her church. At the same time that she's getting a flyer from the Republican National Committee. Mm -hmm. At the same time that she's watching Fox News. At the same time that, you know, she's watching, you know, uh, NBC News and she runs into 
her house cleaner who are her person working in her yard or the roofing crew, mm -hmm. which many people cited, you know, who did the best job on her block of anyone ever. Um, we had someone talking about that, you know. Uh, all of those things are in the mix, and I think the real challenge of a kind of practical theology is how do you sort of like knit those things together for people in a way that makes some coherent sense? I think because they often are really conflicting and pulling people in many, many different ways. Yeah, let me just one. Let me just add one sentence. Uh, <laughs> this is a very large and diverse country, a lot larger and more diverse than academia is, and one of the and one of the irreplaceable virtues of survey research, and this is why I wallow in it, is to get me outside myself as a, lack, as a lifetime academic and researcher functioning within a pretty homogeneous milieu. What do my fellow citizens actually believe, and why do they believe it? And that process of getting outside of ourselves is an absolutely critical first step. Good. Uh, yeah, John. John Carlson, uh, Arizona State University. We uh, do encounter these issues from time to time in our local politics. Uh, I had uh, three points that, uh, that we'll, I promise uh, ensue it, uh, with a question. Uh, three points that seem to have very strong civic implications from what I'm hearing, um, uh, and as well applications for those of us who are in the academy as we reflect on these issues. Uh, the, the, and they've been touched on already, but the first is that words matter. Uh, very clearly, the, the three different ways that you phrased that question, uh, Robbie, uh, made, a, made, a, made an important impact. So we had to be attentive to the words, or to the multiple meanings and implications of words like stranger. The categories matter, the categories of interpretation, whether you classify something as religion or secular, as the dignity of the human person, or what you read into or lump under or assume is under national security. There's some very legitimate national security concerns I think we would all want to attend to, but some will see other things under them too. We have to crack open those things to see what's inside. And the third point, I guess, is that politics matters. I mean, what we've seen here and, and is that if you're looking at the numbers of people who support this, there's a grave disconnect between public support for this and what really needs to happen for those who make the laws. And and. Kristen, I'm as Niburian as the next guy or gal. Far more Niburian <laughs> than the next more. guy or yeah. gal. Yeah, I should say. So I'm, I'm all about social sin and things, but, but one might say, well, I, I don't know how guilty I should feel or how much atonement I should seek if it's the folks who are in position to make the changes who aren't making the changes. Um, and we can look at all the social structures and things like that. So I guess my question is, how do we think about these, you know, the words, the categories, and the... Um, that matter to help change the politics. And, and, and I'll turn, since EJ's gone and Bill's been so kindly reducing all of his sentences to two and three word answers, turn to Bill first to, to put that question to him as our honorary pundit. Distilled <laughs> wisdom. If there's any honor in punditry at all, um, <laughs> look, you're right. And uh, you know, at, this, you know, at, at this point, I think given, given the numbers, the principal task is not so much persuasion. I think about as many people have been persuaded as are going to be. It is effective, targeted, focused mobilization. I'm a little bit more hopeful than the, can than the panelists to my right, stage left, uh, because very important building blocks of the Republican coalition 
have now gotten off the dime uh, and are moving much more aggressively into an advocacy posture. Uh, the business community is belatedly figuring out that the Tea Party is not their friend on this issue and many others, and they are really rolling up their sleeves and getting engaged, which I think is really good news. And Brookings has hosted a meeting of the evangelical immigration table. Now, I can tell you, if you don't already know, there are a whole lot of surprising people gathered around that table, and they are not being shy. You know, they have turned into evangelists for immigration reform, right? That's really good news. So, you know, so over time, I think the forces of opposition are weakening, not just because of moral considerations, because a lot of concrete interests are involved. And the business community desperately wants immigration reform for reasons of its own. And I think that's part of the solution, not part of the problem, even though it is completely self-interested. But of course, the, the the Tea Party can run against the business community, right? Course, it can it can say, you know, these are big corporations that want to have cheap labor, that wants to undermine our own workers, and so the Tea Party can even play the racial card, right? And say, you know, African Americans are going to be the most affected by this wave of immigration, and so there are ways in which they can do a populist. Uh, counter to the, to the business community. Now, the evangelicals, that's an interesting game there. And they might be the game changers. They, that's potentially a, a hopeful place. Well, I take your point about populism. It's part of a much larger narrative about what's going on in American politics right now. But all things considered, I'd rather have the business community off the sidelines and on the field. That's a net gain for immigration reform, despite the downside that you probably we just have a couple of minutes remaining, so I'd ask that the, the, the three remaining people pose your questions as very briefly, and then we'll turn to, collectively to any of the panelists who'd like to respond to any of them, okay? My name is Jason Poling. I'm an evangelical pastor here in the Baltimore area. Our congregation has been partnered with our friends at World Relief, which is headquartered here in Baltimore and is the uh, international relief arm of the National Association of Evangelicals uh, in advocating for immigration reform. And I personally have been uh, active in uh, visits to the Hill in this past year. Um, so uh, I, I would note, I think one of the reasons that, that the, the kind of moral case against uh, the, the opposition immigration reform on the grounds of the biblical injunction to welcome the stranger is that this case is being made by people who don't usually take the Bible literally. I mean, watching liberal Protestants thump their Bibles is like, like watching a banjo player play Metallica. Uh, you, got, <laughs> you just don't do it well. Um, and, and, and frankly, some of these verses come right before and after verses that talk about burning witches. And you're, if you're, you're probably not applying a consistent hermeneutic there. So I think evangelicals <laughs> are, 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 uh, are less likely to trust that, that kind of rhetoric. One thing that I am hearing from my community, and I'd be interested in hearing, but, but I will say, yes, evangelicals, in fact, and I think the survey data has shown sh a continued shift among evangelicals in the last few years, uh, even though we haven't seen movement in the last six months. Um, one thing that I do hear from my community, and I'm wondering if this has been tested at all, is has there been any testing of, of introducing an element of owning personal sin, i.e. Uh, an expression of an apology or a confession on the part of those who have broken the law by coming here? We can't expect that of people who are brought here as children, but I don't think it's unreasonable that okay. a society ask that. Have, have you guys tested that at all? Okay, great. Thank you. Yes, sir. Uh, Silas Allard, Emory University. Um, on the moral values slide, 
the high numbers for national security and individual dignity, the low numbers for welcoming the strangers, suggest to me that as a nation we can hold together the idea of fear of the other and support of individuals. And so I, I just pose to you whether we need, in making an individual dignity argument, to be careful about that turning into a perpetuation of a fear of the other, but an okay admittance of sort of good immigrants. Yeah. Okay, great. Ilsep, you'll have our last word, My our last question. For, no. My name is Ilsep. I'm teaching at Northwestern University. Um, we have a couple of parents in here. First one is politics, second one is religion. But I think uh, this immigration crisis uh, we're witnessing to, um, and to this world is basically, I think, we have a huge um, you know, section that is a neoliberalized a global economy. And uh, we just term the people as strangers and others, but I think uh, they're most likely the victims. So um, I have a respectful disagreement that we should uh, start not from who we are, but, uh, but from what we have done to others. Mm. The problem is that um, this new liberalized global economy, basically uh, they are the victims, but they cannot uh, speak out in a, in a regular political discourse. So the, the issue is that the neoliberal global economy, they cannot resolve this matter. We have to deal with this matter within our you know, political situation. Uh, but the problem is that their voice is not uh, revealed by, it's, a, it's always a second you know, kind of a voices. So uh, this you know, sin issue, the social sin issue, is not the individual you know, citizens of sin. It is about the structural the problems. So, from my perspective, I think it's not, you know, kind of a social thing. It's more likely structural injustice, so we have to deal with yeah. from Okay, well, thank you. Justice. So uh, could our panelists channel your inner Bill Galston and uh, give us a, a brief, yeah, go ahead, whoever would like to start. I, I guess I'll go first. Um, I'll just take the values piece, so we kind of stay on that. Um, you know, I, I do think it's important to remember um, that on the values piece, um, it wasn't just the individual values that was keeping families together was in that, that box. There's about four or five things that are in that kind of eight and ten. Uh, say it's either very or extremely important in the way they think about it, immigration reform. I mean, there's uh, keeping families together, respecting the dignity of every person to name. But I, but I do think it's important that there's that keeping families together piece, which has a little more communal family, social structure, social tie uh, piece to it that, uh, that is, um, uh, I, I think, really important there. I'll stop there. Great. Just to jump on that, I think this is this tension is really um, telling that we can hold together fear of the other. And then maybe to use your example, maybe my roofing team was good, but beyond that, I don't want to generalize. Which is why I think to come back was it John's point: categories matter. Which is that's all I'm trying to do is say if we could move from not just rule of law, even from compassion to a framework of justice, it could get us further to bridging that gap. Um, and to your point in the back. It might be way too prophetic to suggest restorative justice, but I think in terms of looking at victims of a globalized economy, that's pretty relevant. Where to begin? <laughs> I can't, so I'm just going to have to. I'm just going to have to enunciate a disagreement. Uh, I think if you ask, if you ask the res, if you were to ask the following question, you know, vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the citizens of China uh, or most other developing countries, 
Has the effect of the American economy on them been good net or bad net? Almost any economist would say good net. So it's not clear to me that along that dimension, you know, we should be in a position of abject repentance, certainly not a sentiment that I feel with regard to that question. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, as a sociologist, I'm, of course, the structural issue is, is central, but I really wrestle with how to teach immigration and how to, when I talk to churches about this question of immigration, what's the best language to really uh, get people to think beyond their comfort areas. And um, perhaps one way to do it is to talk about, again, starting from the narrative. I think it's important to really start from the very local, from the very personal, and then bring out the structural conditions that are shaping that, those personal choices and those personal things. Perhaps one way to do it is to talk about consumption. How, how our consumption, how the burgers that we eat, how the, the clothes that we wear, right? That, how that is involving the labor of other people. And that part of uh, the cheap stuff that we find here in this country is possible because of the conditions in which these other folks work. And many of those conditions involved having to migrate in order to support their own families. When you start to make it, to bring it down to, you know, talking about the burger that you're going to go out and consume, think about where it's coming from, right? And think about the families that are involved in producing that burger that your family is eating. Then that kind of um, analysis, I think, is more successful in bringing out the structural issue. But just to drop the structural issue and to talk about neoliberal capitalism in the abstract and to say that, you know, immigration is obviously a result of this and therefore we need to, you know, this is a case of chickens coming home to roost is um, often backfire, backfires often in uh, the classroom and in churches. I think it has to be, there has to be a, a, a way to bring the issue down, to cut it down to size and to build it in the personal, the personal cost, the human cost and the human face behind these structural processes that are obviously shaping these human processes. Well, um, this has been a really terrific and enlightening conversation. It's a big room, but we've had a lot of big ideas in here too. And I want to thank you all for all the questions, and especially to our panelists for taking the time and investing their energies in being here too. And Robbie says,